0: Hello, this is Aaron. Um, and if you're listening to this, you may have noticed that we haven't put out any actual episodes yet. Uh, well, that changes right now because the very first one we did was um, to go straight to the source and learn how to record podcasts from the very best. We interviewed Rob Wiblin and Kieran Harris um, from 80,000 Hours, who produced uh, the 80,000 Hours podcast, which is, in my opinion, like the best podcast out there. So it was a long time in the making. Um, it's actually been many months since we actually recorded the episode but it has finally been released on 80,000 hours new um like secondary feed called 80,000 hours after hours and you also will probably notice that my audio quality is terrible during this episode so somebody heard it um and sent me a professional quality microphone so I would like to say to this person you know who you are thank you so much and let me stop taking up your time and here's the episode
1: Welcome to ADK After Hours. I'm Kieran Harris, producer of the show and former White House chef in the Nixon administration. This is the first of three episodes we're using to launch this new podcast. We decided to start off with a behind-the-scenes look at the original 80,000-hours podcast. The host of that show, Rob Wiblin, and I are interviewed by Carney Capuano and Aaron Bergman for their new podcast, All Good, a show by the Georgetown University Effective Altruism Group. We get into the history and philosophy of the 80,000-hours podcast, the nuts and bolts of how we make the show, pros and cons of podcasting versus other mediums, our position in the effective altruism community, and much more. I expect this will be fun for fans of the 80,000 Hours podcast and a weird place to start for people who've never heard of us. Just to note that it may seem bizarre that Kani is there at the beginning, then suddenly disappears for a while, then reappears, then disappears again. What happened there is that she could only join us for the first hour or so of the recording. And uh, to give you some only behind the scenes info, we usually rearrange sections of our episodes so that what we feel are the most important or most engaging parts go earlier. All right, here's Connie and Aaron interviewing me and Rob.
2: Yeah, so Rob, could you give us some background on 80,000 Hours and how you guys started the show?
3: Yeah, so eighty thousand hours for people who don't know is this non-profit research uh, and outreach group that's been around, I guess, since two thousand eleven. We try to help people have more social impact with with their career, find uh, ways to help more people in in a bigger way through their work. Yeah, we've had we've had the website and the the career guide up for, for quite a long time, but three years ago we started a podcast, and it was actually born out of primarily out of laziness on my part. Because we we started to look into like quite specific global problems, so we spent a while early on with the organization trying to figure out what kind of issues in the world do we think are most problematic, where people might be able to have an enormous impact by, by by trying to solve them, and we kind of settled on you know a typical cluster of like five or ten of things that we think about, and then. We're starting to look more and more deeply into them. So I started basically the only way that we could learn the most relevant stuff was to go and speak to people who are actually at the coalface, people who are at the cutting edge of trying to solve these problems and get advice from them on like, well, what should our readers do if they want to pursue a career in this in this field? And I found myself in the situation where I was constantly interviewing people and then having to do this very laborious process of boiling down what they'd said into an article, which is just a lot of work, basically. And I was like, can't I just not write these articles? And instead, I'll just interview the people like I'm already doing and then we can just put the mp3s up and basically yeah out of out of my procrastination around writing articles we just started slipping into doing interviews instead and putting them out and yeah we've run from there
2: (laughs) that's awesome um as a podcast listener thank you very much for that (laughs) um well then maybe kieran could talk about how the show has evolved over time
1: yeah so one thing is that the beginning rob was just working on this by himself and then, about I think maybe fourteen episodes in, I joined. Yeah, Ben Todd, who's the CEO of Eighty Thousand Hours, asked me if I wanted to start working with Rob because Rob needs some help with the podcast, and I had I had no experience doing that. I was just working on some copy editing stuff and stuff around the website. But I thought like that sounds kind of cool, um, <laughs> and so like very very quickly we started working together, and then it became very much this two person organization within the organization, and we started um, yeah just really thinking about it pretty carefully. Um, So I think one thing, one big change is just it's gotten a lot more professional since those early days. So I think like initially it was very much as Rob said, like he's sitting down, he's trading with people, just turning on the digital recorder and getting as much information as he can. But if you go back through like, you know, for example, our old blog posts, they're very like bare bones in like the early days. And like nowadays we have these very polished transcripts and like inline links and, you know, just uh, we have huge collaborations with, with the guests now. I think that's probably a big change. And yeah, I think I think in terms of in terms of Rob's hosting, I think he's gotten yeah, worlds better since those early days, which uh, makes sense. Um, <laughs> and I think I think like you, I think I think now I think Rob is um, you know I, I I make fun of him a lot, but I think he is a, an exceptional host nowadays. And I think part of that is just becoming much more comfortable with the medium. And much more himself, which is a kind of a, a note that I, I would give him down the years. Of like, I think you know, I think like off off mic, I think Rob is like very charismatic, <laughs> and, and you know, um, I'm, I'm a big fan. But like, I think in those early days, he was like maybe a bit more stilted, and you know, it was it was yeah, it was a bit more serious. Whereas I think if you listen to episodes now, I think they are like often like pretty funny and light, and yeah, just like much more of Rob's personality comes through. And I think that's been a, a big big change for the
0: better. Oh, that's awesome. And then, so, so you talked a little bit about, you saw some ways that Rob's a great interviewer. Do you think he has any bad habits as an interviewer that you'd like to call out? From the Oh, job?
1: yes, sure he does. Uh, where to begin. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I mean, so one fairly pragmatic thing is that Rob has a tendency to ask a lot of compound questions. So there's like two questions and it rolled into one. So it'll be like, you know, what were the results of that study? And uh, maybe what do you want to work on next? And then like, it's just like, it's like this huge, huge question where it's just like, well, the guest is, you know, necessarily going to um, talk for a long time. And one of the biggest things we try and do with the podcast is try and make sure that they're conversation. So we, we try not to, to have the guest speak for like more than a couple of minutes at a time. And when Rob asks those compound questions, it makes it like very difficult. And yeah, another thing is, you know, less important, but one thing Rob does is he always laughs maniacally at the most serious topics. <laughs> So the darker we get into the show, and I'm sure sure listeners will have noticed this, but he just like, he can't help himself but laugh. And occasionally you can tell the guests are like a little bit off put by that. And, you know, it'd be great to change that. But
3: yeah, that it seems like that would be very hard for him to change. Yesterday, we were recording an episode on collapse and recovery. So it's like, what if 99.9% of people died? Like, would humanity come back? So people can enjoy my maniacal laughter at all kinds of horrific things that we're discussing.
0: A little bit of comedic relief. I don't know. I bet, I bet some listeners appreciate appreciate it though, like taking a little bit of the edge off. Yeah,
3: I mean, yeah, I think Kieran's exactly right. in the in, in the early episodes, you can hear that I was quite anxious, and I think a mistake that I was making was I was trying to put on airs of like being a radio host. I was trying to be like, "Here we are, like with this person." And I got to be like all extremely formal and like say everything in the in the exact right way. And that is just very hard. And it's also not as much fun to listen to. So yeah, just trying to be, yeah, getting like looser and just trying to make it more exactly like how you would speak in a normal conversation has definitely, definitely been an improvement.
0: Yeah, I I think that's really good advice for us because we've noticed that like, like at least on our first episode, we like started recording. And when we were trying to record we'd like, yeah, sound like basically trying to sound like a radio host. And then like, when we'd like take a break from like actually recording, we just have like a normal conversation and it would sound so much better. That's that's
2: where our best content was. It's just like our side conversation. But yeah, so, so Kieran, that's, that's probably some of your advice for um, Rob, but we were curious about what, what's advice that you like common advice you'd have for guests that come on the show?
1: Yeah, sure. So it's kind of yeah related to what I was just saying about Rob. Is that yeah a common thing for guests to come on our show, uh, particularly when they're academics or if they've written books or they have like lectures on these topics, is that they have a tendency to speak in monologues. Uh, it's very natural to be like, well, you know, they know this topic so well. Whereas yeah, so my biggest note is always like, well, we're really trying to make this be a conversation. So every couple of minutes, trying to Rob a chance to say something, even if it's just like him going like, oh, that's interesting. We found it like that. It makes the episode like much more engaging. And this is less like a real struggle, especially doing remote interviews. Like in person, you have these, you have these cues, even if you're, you know, using video, which we do recommend using for remote interviews, it's still not as easy to read cues not being live. And so it's easy for guests to feel like they should just, just keep talking because, you know, if Rob's just like, you know, staring at the screen, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> they're just like, well, I guess I haven't said enough. Whereas, uh Yeah. So that's, that's maybe the main thing. And the other thing is that because of the nature of our show, we really do just want to present the best version of guests views. And so I really try to emphasize like, look, we just want you to be relaxed. We can cut anything out you like at all. Like we send guests the transcript after the episodes and if they want to like re-record sections, like that's totally fine. And basically just like, yeah, want this to be like so relaxed and like the opposite of, I don't know, doing like a high stakes newspaper thing where maybe they're going to say something out of context and it's going to be used. Like we never ever use anything that, um, that the guests wouldn't want us to use.
0: Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And I think that probably like, it definitely puts like me at ease, for example, like knowing that even even as like the official host of this podcast, like knowing that we can test stuff. So um, do you guys have a general philosophy of the 80,000 Hours podcast? And if so, what is it?
3: Yeah, so I guess... Initially, as I described, the the primary philosophy of the show was laziness and me trying to get as much content out there with as, as little effort as possible. But I suppose as we've done more and more, I kind of have developed stronger views and and stronger taste and like a sense of what's a gap that we're filling that needs to be that needs to be filled. I suppose the core aspect of that is I perceive with interviews in general that folks think that the serious thing to do is to get someone and then have a like slightly adversarial thing where it's like you can reveal the weaknesses in their argument or you can reveal that they're bad in some way that, that people didn't realize. That's viewed as kind of serious journalism or, or, or serious coverage. Whereas we do something that's like, that's quite, that's quite different. And I guess I'll explain why I think that it's potentially underrated. So we, we think of these interviews as collaborations with the guest. So they actually get to like look at all the questions ahead of time if they want and potentially cut out any that they don't like. And after we finish recording, we send them a transcript if they want to look at it and they can cut out anything that they don't like. So in that sense, it's it's a very softball interview. But I don't think that that is a problem at all because we're trying to find people who we think are really worth listening to, who have like interesting opinions, like a worldview that's different from other people that is instructive, where the important work is like, getting them to fully explain themselves, getting, getting them to like communicate to us so that we can start to see the world through their eyes and see the problem that they're working on through their eyes. And that takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of openness and follow-up questions and people being willing to be sincere and to like not feel threatened and to be willing to get into all kinds of details in a like really honest intellectual discussion. And so even, even though we're not holding anyone's feet to the fire, I think you can potentially learn a lot more from these interviews, at least with the right guest than an interview where you're like trying to pull out something from someone that they are like a not keep something that they're not actually excited to say.
0: Yeah, that's like a, it's a really interesting question about like the degree to which like an interview should be adversarial versus uh, collaborative. I would imagine, well, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I would imagine like having that opportunity for you both to like uh, prepare beforehand and then take things out after probably makes things like more intellectually honest, like during the conversation, because you don't have to err on the side of safety. Do you think like that makes you as the interviewer more relaxed as well? So like you can, not only the guest is more relaxed, but like you as well can like not err on the side of safety as much. Uh, Does that make sense?
3: Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a huge benefit and a huge relief to know that Kieran can cut out anything too stupid, uh, too stupid <laughs> that I say. I, I think I regularly make dad jokes on the show, and I suppose sometimes they land, and, and sometimes they don't. But uh, Kieran pulls out <laughs> pulls out pulls out the ones that, that turn out to be uh, lame in retrospect. Mm-hmm. That, that that is really my main my main job as an editor to make sure no lame jokes. <laughs> get in it. That's yeah. my. It's a, an essential part of the editing process. But yeah, more more seriously, I guess we live in a time when people, and maybe this has kind of always been the case, that people are very cagey because they're worried about saying the wrong thing they're worried about something blowing up on social media even folks who are working in like not very controversial areas have kind of learned at least because of the way that we talk about that kind of risk to like reveal as little as possible to like think about exactly how you're going to phrase things ahead of time to like check things with your media person and potentially that that makes sense but by allowing people to just cut things out afterwards with the benefit of hindsight it does mean that they don't have to be cagey at the time. They can say their thing and then see afterwards, you know, maybe it's actually fine to to put out. Maybe it's not going to be a problem. And they don't have to be they don't have to be doing two things at once in their head, like both trying to figure out how to communicate their actual views and also thinking like how is this going to be used against me at some point, at some point in the future. And I guess I've I've been a guest on on various shows and On the ones where I know that I'm not going to be able to review it and potentially cut stuff out, it's just, yeah, it's more anxiety inducing. And you have to always be doing this double track thinking of like, (laughs) how, like, how could I phrase this wrong in a way that's going to offend someone somewhere and then cause them to cause them to give me grief?
1: Yeah. And it's very unlikely you're going to get that bounce, right? You're always going to lean too conservative because it's just, yeah, (laughs) there's just an asymmetry there where it's just like, okay, you get this wrong and like, it could just be a disaster. You get it right. And it's like the interview is 15% better.
0: Yeah, no, and another super interesting point from that is just that like you're sort of pre-screening people for like who's interesting and like useful to talk to rather than taking people who are just like already famous and trying to like juice out like the correct ideas through like an adversarial interview I've never even thought about that before but like you sort of need to filter people what like at some point in the in the, in the system like you, you can't just interview everybody about everything so like I guess one side or like the more normal stand, like standard point of view is to like take somebody just like really well known or well regarded or famous and sort of grill them. And the other point of view is to like pre-select people from the population and be like a little bit less adversarial. So I think that that's, do you agree that's like a correct framing about maybe what you guys are doing?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think because the whole goal is to like deeply, deeply understand like someone's unique perspective, like what they're adding to the intellectual conversation, that's going to work a lot better if they do have an interesting worldview to share that that isn't stupid. And so (laughs) yeah, it is somewhat important to to pre-screen. But fortunately, there's so many interesting people out there who have something like interesting to say, and they just need kind of the the opportunity and safe space to communicate it. I mean, so this approach where people can pre-screen questions and cut out anything afterwards, I guess it sounds like it would be a bit ridiculous if you did it with like a politician. So, I mean, the standard thing of journalism would be like, no, you've got to like hold this elected representative's feet to the fire. I think there's a lot to that. Obviously, for people who are like very powerful, there is a good reason to <laughs> to also ask them hardball questions or also be like adversarial sometimes. But wouldn't it, I think actually a lot of the time, even if you were interviewing someone as powerful as Joe Biden... This approach might do better because he's not gonna like he's just not gonna do an interview if he thinks that it's going to be going to be too difficult. He's just gonna be be cagey or give evasive answers and not answer anything. But if you took this approach, then at least you might be able to get out what he is willing to say about the Joe Biden worldview and like what his priorities are because he won't feel threatened because he knows that he can. Or his media people can just cut out any any gaffes that that he includes or otherwise. To some extent, the idea that yeah we have got to like pull out the truth from people underestimates the degree to which, at least if people are trained, that they can evade questions and just divert things off into other stuff. And that it's all just kind of a game where journalists are trying to suck something out of someone that they're not willing to say and they are trained in order to like make sure that the interview goes fine despite the fact that they're not answering the questions and like who is really gaining anything relative to a thing where we acknowledge that they're not going to be willing to talk about x and so let's at least get them to talk about y which they which they do maybe have something interesting that they're willing to willing to communicate
0: yeah that's definitely super interesting and then people. People like wonder why politicians or like they regularly complain that politicians are like really stilted. Just use like the same sort of like jargon over and over again. And, and it definitely makes sense as to why. So this is like one area that I think makes the ADK stand out from like other media and even other podcasts. Do you think there's any other advantages that the show brings that, that, yeah, that makes it stand out from the crowd, both with respect to other podcasts, but also just like other general forms of media?
1: Yeah. I mean, one very obvious thing is that we are a part of this effective altruism community. I mean, that makes us stand out. You know, if we're talking about podcasts, this is like very unusual to be having a show that actually is, you know, in a a not so hidden way, actually really cares about concretely doing good in the world. And not even just doing good, but just actually like caring about the content of an episode being able to be applied to the real world. So, I mean, even even if, you know, you you were like, you know, focused on, I don't know, some some industry that we didn't think was uh, particularly important, you'll still like find people like maybe generally like just talking about things that are interesting more so than like actually uh, actually doing things. Whereas I think like, yeah, the focus is on us. Like we ultimately want people to be able to use a lot of this information to go out there and make the world a better place. And sometimes it's indirectly, sometimes it's just keeping people engaged in these ideas and, and you know, staying part of the Effective Altruism community or being introduced. But a lot of time we have very specific episodes where it's like, okay, here is an episode all about how you can go and be a machine learning engineer. Like that is just there for you. And we've had, pe- we've had a lot of people who've changed their careers directly just from listening to the podcast. And um, yeah, that's, a bit, that's a big deal for us.
0: Oh, that's awesome. How, how do you guys think that the desire to like really improve the world and change people's careers affects how you produce the show?
3: Yeah, so I guess the great majority of content that people read online or podcasts that, that that are produced, including like most news, is basically there for entertainment. And that's like totally understandable. It's the reason that, that I consume most content is because it's like, oh that's that's interesting. It's like I enjoy learning stuff about the world. It feels semi productive. It's just yeah, it's just entertaining to feel like you're keeping up with what's with what's going on. And I guess though there's absolutely nothing wrong with that, it does mean that very often the end of say, you know, planet money episode about this or that topic, they're not super inclined to close the deal and say, and what does this imply about what someone ought to do about something specifically? Like what kind of job do this imply that this is more impactful or like what kinds of like research topics are most pressing within this particular area? It's basically a thing that's completely absent because people are not reading the New York Times in order to make actual decisions almost ever. They're reading it just because they get a good feeling that <laughs> they think that it's important to know about what's going on in the world in general, even though it basically never changes anything anything that they do. And I'd say it's partly just the business model, that the business model of news is kind of advertising or people subscribing. And there's not you probably shrink your audience by trying to have a focus on like what should a specific person do, because then potentially only a tiny number of people are actually able to act on any specific piece of advice about some specific policy area or some specific industry that's doing something good or bad. So it's like a terrible business decision. So we have this incredible luxury because we're able to be funded through philanthropy as a nonprofit to produce this content. But we can then actually do a bit at the end of the show where we think for half an hour, okay, and what does this mean? Okay. Specifically, what's good, what's to be done? Yeah. <laughs> Even knowing that like the audience for that might be six people, we can still pay the bills, despite the fact that some people might tune out at that point. But it means that that section is quite different or the mentality sometimes when we're like, okay, and what specifically now should 80,000 hours recommend to its readers in order to allow them to, to have more impact? It has a different like more pragmatic like more practical mindedness than most documentaries or most most podcasts. we should say that, like as Rob said there, it's only this like final section that is like usually quite directed, and
1: that like the overwhelming <laughs> majority of our listeners are still listening for entertainment, and we we take that like very seriously and we try to keep things entertaining. But yeah, it is just the fact that we're like quite happy to just have this small section of the audience who might actually go and do something concrete with that episode. And with the added benefit of sometimes people who think they're just listening for entertainment will, after a couple of years, realize that they've listened to every episode and now suddenly their worldview has changed. Uh, And then when they like have a chance to like think about their career more carefully, they'll think, well, wait a minute, you know, maybe that AI stuff is something I should work on, you know, in in a way that they wouldn't have if they didn't have that show
0: yeah i do wonder like as a listener i'm trying to reflect on like my motivations for listening and like to be honest like i really think that like the minute when i decide to listen to like an eighty thousand hours episode it is for entertainment by and large but i think there's like something to be said for like the interaction between like entertainment and actionable advice it's like things are just tend to be like at least for me and i suspect other people tend to be more intrinsically interesting and just like motivating to listen to when it's something that even if there's no like direct action item that you can like take part in like in the next five or 10 minutes or like the next week or even if it's like something that you know that you're going to be able to incorporate into your life in like a meaningful sense it like might be more entertaining and like it, it it might that might manifest itself as like a stronger desire to listen and a stronger sort of entertainment value um, do, yeah. do you that like, plays a role.
1: In, in- yeah. I like the idea that whenever someone sits down to listen to an 80,000 Hours podcast episode, you're kind of buying a ticket to the raffle that maybe this new cause that you've never heard of might be the thing you want to work on one day. So it's like, probably not. But it's like, okay, you've never thought about, let's say, voting reform. But now you're going to like sit down and listen to this episode and maybe by the end of 90 minutes, you're going to go, wait a minute, that sounds exactly like kind of thing I would want to work on. And then you'll end up going and going and pursuing it. And it's one of the things that we try and do. Um, One of the most commonly requested things for the show is that we we address these new cause areas. And I think that's that's part of it.
0: Yeah, great. That's awesome. So how strongly do you guys have a theory of change about how the show is going to like improve the world?
3: I mean, I guess there's a, okay, so there's a specific concrete approach. And then there's also this more general thing, which is, which is kind of hard to measure, but might be more important. So one, one path is just people listen to the show and then they go and get a different job. <laughs> or they like, change their plans, change what, they, what they're going to study, start going to conferences because they're interested in this topic. And I don't, don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but it's a non-trivial number of people who have done that often in concert with something else. Like they've also read the 80,000 hours website or they've engaged with the effective altruism community more broadly and in aggregate, that's that's caused them to want to do something quite different than, than what they were doing before. But my guess is, and it's hard to hard to substantiate this, but I think it's a reasonable guess, is that having tens of thousands of people be exposed for many, many hours to the general way that we approach problems and think about prioritization and think about decision-making, it's having like a broader cultural effect because it changes like what they think about in their in their work in general, it changes how they think about politics to some degree, it changes how they talk to other people and then it just starts to get into the into the water a, a little bit more and to take ideas that I guess I think are particularly important and and make them make them significantly more mainstream and make them significantly more understood so they're not just like people don't just get the like one sentence version where they're like that sounds stupid but actually there's a reasonable number of people out there who can repeat them somewhat faithfully and help society as a whole to get to grips with the problems that we think are are the most pressing. Yeah, I
1: think the best way of introducing effective altruism is to introduce it as a question, as it's a research question of how do you do the most good? And I think that our podcast is actually a great example of that, whereas we're we're very clearly not like, okay, here is the thing that we want everyone to do. Like the fact that we're having all these different episodes on so many different cause areas is kind of a sign that we're like, you know, we have this humility of like well, we actually don't quite know what the best thing to work on is and we could change our mind at any moment. And so I think yeah, having that attitude to anything is hopefully infectious where it's like maybe maybe like I don't know someone's gonna have a chance to work on a course that we have never dealt with on the show but if they hear us consistently thinking about problems in this certain way they can apply that to really anything any kind of problem
0: yeah no, it, like as a, I, I think it's it's sort of infected my brain in, in, a, in a good way and I definitely that's really interesting about like the two sort of like the sort of more specific than the more general theory of change it's like really hard for me to think through like which one of those sort of dominates or stands out I, I think it's like it seems quite plausible that both are like super important in fact yeah so i know like i i consider myself one of these folks but i know there's a lot of people who really really enjoy the 80,000 hours podcast and consider themselves fans what do you think it is about the show that draws them in
3: yeah i mean i guess we don't want to be too full of ourselves because it's true we have some fans who are extremely like extremely into the show but obviously in the scheme of things it's a tiny number so we've managed to like select out you know Perhaps a couple of hundred people in the entire world who are extremely keen on the thing that we're doing. I guess maybe like one way that we're different from other shows that I think can make people enthusiastic is I try to be kind of actively informal in a way. So it's like, I make stupid jokes, I laugh at stuff. We are like deliberately try to get people out of a formal script. And I think it just leads to like much more candidness, much more quickly. It's like, I swear as well. I think whenever you're trying to like put on airs and like be someone other than yourself, I think it's just death. It's just it's like the worst possible thing that you can do as a as a show host, because people can sense that inauthenticity. They can sense that you're like trying to like impress them with the way they are, with the way that you're talking. And as informal as you can make something, I think that leads to much more interesting answers from the guests, because it's like hopefully it will be like a different format than what they're used to talking about. And then it will cause them to to say things that they have haven't said in the past. And to pat both of us on the back
1: a little bit, I think that might be one of the, probably the biggest note that I've given over the years is for Rob to just be himself. And I think he's taken that, yeah, he's he's done really well to just basically lean into that because one thing it's like, as Rob just said, I think it's, it's the best move for the show. And also it's just more fun for Rob. Like, it's just like less anxiety inducing (laughs) to be like, I have to like be this different person. And like, what would this like character Rob say? Like, he can just be like, well, what would I say? Yeah. I think it's been, it's been really good for the show.
0: Yeah. Awesome. So we talked a lot about what the 80,000 hour show does well before moving on to maybe what it doesn't do. So well, what do you guys try to avoid? Um, what, what do you think w- would, would reduce the quality of the podcast that you, that you actively try to guard against?
3: Yeah, I, I guess over time, We've developed like a bunch of red flags, it was like <laughs> we've either learned through experience or by reasoning things out that this is not potentially going to be a super promising, super promising episode. I guess anything that's super topical is a is a little bit suspicious. We would like ideally want most of the episodes to be interesting in one, two, three, like maybe even even five years. Because there is just like there's a bit of a social phenomenon where people want to talk about whatever other people happen to be talking about in any given minute. So through a somewhat random process, something becomes topical or trending. And then there's this incredible suction towards everyone in the media talking about some topic right now, even though there's like other more pressing things going on. And there's no particular reason why this thing has gotten highlighted. So we, and I guess I think a lot of other podcasts, because of the timelines involved, are able to kind of avoid that topicality most of the time. I guess an exception was COVID, where we did do a bunch of fast turnaround episodes. I guess in our defense, that was maybe the, most, the biggest news story of our life. So <laughs> we make it, an make it exception once in a while. I guess, despite the fact that we're getting deeply into people's worldview, it's not primarily a show about people or about People's reactions to things, yeah, how they felt about it's like something when it happened. The main reason not to do that is just that I think okay, imagine that you're doing science journalism for the New York Times. Most people don't understand biology very deeply, so if you're talking to a biologist and you want to reach a broad audience in order to have a large advertising base and make make enough money to pay the bills, then the thing that most people can understand is like how the scientists felt when they made the discovery, and so even in like interviews that naturally might be extremely technical, they tend to become quite personal because of the need for many people to take an interest in something that's actually going to turn a profit. So we tend to lean away from that and have something more of an engineering mindset. Some people don't like that. I think it's definitely a piece of feedback that we get that people might like to get to know the guests a bit more on a personal level or hear more about how I feel about things or like what what struggles I've had in my life. And we do do some of that. It's, it's definitely not not a complete no. But I think I feel like a more important gap that we can fill is actually being more technical and remaining focused on the practical, pragmatic question of how to solve problems and what people have accomplished at an engineering level. Do you want to continue, Kieran?
1: Yeah, sure. One actually really cool thing that we try to do is to not duplicate we do this by prepping very carefully. So we do like way more prep than the average show does. And we'll typically have, you know, I don't know, sometimes five to 10 pages of questions that we don't end up using. And we really will try and ask guests things that they haven't talked about before. And we'll try and put uh, if they're talking about a book, we'll try and put a lecture at the start of the episode or we will direct people to something they've already done. And it's, you know, a big reason why we we go so long, you know, three, four, five, sometimes longer than that hours in is because basically if somebody has this shtick where it's like, you know, people just go on like every single podcast and they do exactly the same 60 minutes where it's like if they're used to that 60 minute shtick and we're like, well, we're just going to talk to you for three hours. Then in that third hour, they're going to have to talk about new stuff, you know, (laughs) they don't really have a choice. And that is really, so it's like, yeah, thing that I think about as a producer of the show is that we want to make sure that our episodes are delivering content that you can't get elsewhere.
0: Yeah, that's awesome.
3: I guess another category of guests that we think isn't that promising is, for example, politicians who are just so trained in being cagey that I don't think we would be able to get a candid interview out of almost any elected representative most of the time, or there would be like a very unusual exception. Another one is like people in positions of power within organizations where they have a lot of stakeholders that they have to keep happy those people, just for like practical reasons, are not in a position to do a candid three hour long interview because they're not going to feel safe, <laughs> despite the fact they can remove stuff or like anything, anything interesting probably would have to be cut out in the production process because anything too edgy that they haven't said before is going to risk getting them fired. So I think with those people, you, you take down their name and you think, well, we'll get them when they resign or we'll get them when they when they retire, because people can be a lot more interesting, I guess, at 66 <laughs> once they're not trying to trying to get hired anymore uh, than they were when they were you know, leading some part of the WHO or or whatever else.
0: Yeah. So so on the opposite side, what do you guys, do have any thoughts about interviewing people who you know really well, like, you know, friends or close colleagues, things like that?
3: Yeah. I mean, I guess we've had some like very positive successes there and some other ones where it's been challenging. I think by and large, the times when I've done like standard interviews about a specific external topic that I do proper background research on, and I know the guest relatively well, I think it just turns out people love to hear like friends bantering back and forth and like having a good time and laughing and even making in-jokes or things like that. It's like interesting from a psychological perspective why it's so enjoyable to listen to a conversation like that. But I think it is the case. And yeah, the, the ep- episodes with people I know well have often been been audience favorites. It's possible that you know, the guests are even more relaxed because they, they trust me or there's, there's a social understanding there. I think the cases where talking with friends can potentially not work quite as well is if you just go in like planning to have a conversation in general about something and you haven't like prepped that much... Then I think it can quickly become a bit in groupy, whereas like people are going to find it a little bit hard to follow, or it becomes a little bit more like a slightly aimless, like normal conversation. You just start slipping into how you might talk ordinarily, which is perhaps just like not quite interesting enough to to hold people's attentions. So I think you need to have an important topic that the person, the friend you're talking to, is an expert in. That that will often produce uh, really excellent excellent results. But just chatting about nothing in particular, not so much. <coughs>
1: Yeah. I mean, another thing that you want to avoid, and, and this is like particularly a problem if you're interviewing friends, is we really try to avoid as much as we can, not always successful. but we're trying to avoid jargon in episodes where it's if you have if you have someone that you're really close with and you just have a way of speaking, you know, off mic, like you will just naturally just start to talk using these terms that like no one knows what they mean outside of your like small subgroup. And I kind of hate that. So you're trying to like have this balance where it's very like fun. It's very accessible. You know, you can tell that people like each other. But at the same time, you really want to be bringing everyone alongside that journey of the conversation.
0: Yeah, that's definitely like rings true for me. So like, I've been consuming sort of EA and like rationalist-ish content for for a while. But like, now that I'm you know starting a group and like Carney's pretty new to EA, so it's like always it, it's like funny to be reminded of how much stuff like uh, how many like words and phrases like are pretty jargony. Like everybody says failure mode all the time. There's lots <laughs> of Um, and so yeah, it's 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 always it's always funny to be reminded of like how much I'm following to like the usual EA speak. Yeah. So, so moving on, what topics do you think the 80,000 hours show ought to cover more?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, for me personally, both because I I think it's important and also based on the feedback we've gotten, I would love to cover more mental health topics, which we've tried to do this year. So, I mean, I recorded an episode with my colleague Howie released earlier this year and like, it was phenomenally successful. It's our most popular episode ever based on user feedback and listening time. And based on our user survey, like I was pretty sure that that was (laughs) going to be a hit. And the response to that makes me think that, I don't know, there, there is just this, there's this need for this content and we are in a position to be able to, um, to take that on. So I, w- I would personally like to be able to do more of that, even though it is like very non-standard. And Rob was saying earlier that we normally don't talk about personal experience as much. Um, I think we can lean into that a little bit more. And we, and we have started asking guests at the end of episodes, actually. We've had a few good examples where we've asked guests, you know, how like, you know, a certain moment in their life was to deal with emotionally and, you know, if they have like mental health tips and things like that.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, th- that was a fantastic episode. Yeah, I, I had to listen to it. And ch- usually, like, usually I'm able to like, I'm like a big podcaster, like I'll listen to things like all in one chunk. Yeah, that, that one I had to chunk up a little bit. But yeah, that was a fantastic, fantastic episode.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think it's just great to be able to normalize that. To be able to just very like casually talk among, amongst like eighty thousand hours staff, where it's like, you know, we do have this position in the community where I think generally we're like pretty well respected. And to just be like, oh, just everyone at eighty thousand hours has either like dealt with this themselves or like, you know, love people who, who have and just are very sympathetic to this. And yeah, to just try and promote this norm of that is okay and we're like here to support you, I think it's very important.
0: Yeah, that's great.
1: Well, one more one more thing to add is that sometimes we're like, you know, we have these gaps and we like fully intend to, to fill them. And just for practical reasons, they fall down. So um, so one example is there is a gap in our library of we haven't done an episode on S-risks, on risks of astronomical suffering. And it would be very reasonable for people to look at our library and say, like, why haven't you done this yet? But like, we do want to do that. And it's just like a matter of finding the right guest. And so like we've been in conversations with people trying to find someone who was who happy to come on. And just basically those people saying, well, actually, like we would like to do that in maybe a year when our research agenda is more advanced. So it can sometimes look from the outside where it's like we don't care about a topic, when actually it's just, um, yeah, there are just actually practical things about recording podcasts that get in the way.
0: Cool. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that episode on asterisks. Yeah, yeah. Rob, do you have any thoughts on topics that you wish you had covered more?
3: Yeah. Well, I guess there's still lots of time. So yeah, there's, there's some things that I regret that we that we haven't haven't done yet, but maybe we will in future. So it's one that I wish we'd found more guests for is. So I tend to be as an economist, someone who has that training to be like relatively positive about markets and perhaps sometimes a bit skeptical or a bit cynical about about government interventions. And I wish we'd found maybe more guests who could make arguments that I think are like persuasive and are likely to persuade the audience that, you know, markets are inappropriate in this particular area or people perhaps from like heterodox economic schools who can present, uh, you know, perhaps a more a more more socialist angle on things. I think realistically, the reason is that because of the views that I have, I don't find those arguments super persuasive. So it can be a little bit hard to find, I guess, to I think, yeah, like this person's going to persuade, persuade me a lot. I guess we recently had an example where someone who has like a lot of political opinions that I that I wouldn't naturally agree with uh, Mushtaq Khan. We did a long interview with him. He has a has a more, I guess, more interventionist perspective than I would typically have. But I found him like very compelling and very interesting. So hopefully we can do do more of those in, in future. Because another thing we've never gotten to is doing a debate where, you know, I significantly disagree with the guest and then we kind of structure it such that we're going to like try to get to the bottom of some issue where we where we don't see eye to eye. Or an alternative structure might be that I host two different guests who have different perspectives and then try to mediate between them and, and reach some sort of a sort of agreement. I guess I'm a little bit scared of that, a little bit scared of that format. I think there's a degree of cowardice on my part, (laughs) perhaps that it can be socially awkward to uh, figure out how to how to navigate a situation where in front of a large audience you're disagreeing with the the person you're talking to, and like, how hard do you do you you push? But it's probably a skill that I should try to develop a little bit better.
0: Yeah, I would encourage it. I mean, especially because especially when both parties would have the chance to tweak things afterwards. Like, I think that the synthesis of like people not being on their guard. And also just the sort of like ethos in the EA community of being like really kind of okay with disagreement and like not taking personal offense at sort of intellectual disagreement could like be really productive. Like I think Julia Galef on Rationally Speaking has had a few like debate type episodes and like, I think some of them have worked better than others, but like by and large, they've been, they've been pretty productive. So I would be interested to hear an 80,000 hours hosted, hosted debate. Yeah, that's super interesting. So when you guys do push back on, on something a speaker says, like, what is your approach to that?
3: Yeah, I think we have very often found that if, so the, so the guest like argues A, then I argue not A, and then kind of put to them like, what's the response to that? Very often the response is kind of to say the, the the same thing again. And it's like surprising, like often you just don't get a super informative or like pretty quickly, you just start repeating your different things. And so I think the approach that I've kind of settled on, which some people might think is good and some people might might not think is good, is just that. I'll, I'll kind of respond and then I'll let them reply. And then it's kind of, I leave it to the audience. I, I don't know. I don't have to like get the last word and say, I'm not persuaded by that. We trust the audience to like have their brains seriously engaged during the interview and to decide for themselves, whether they find what the guest is saying to be persuasive. I think that over time, if people continue to listen, they get a general sense of my worldview and what stuff I'm likely to agree with and not agree with. So I'm not hiding my views in particular, but going back and forth I think can just often take you in loops and waste time where it's more interesting to find out what other things does this person who' we've, uh, who's hopefully been like pretty highly selected uh, what what do they think
0: yeah 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 that's, that's interesting I mean it seems to me like like it works pretty well
3: <laughs> I guess one way that it can potentially fall down is people can potentially think that just because I haven't said at the end that I'm not persuaded and I disagree they can sometimes walk away thinking that I do agree with something that the guest has said and I'm just a bit unsure what to do about that because I think if what would happen if I was like at the end of a discussion of some particular topic was like, I still disagree, then you feel like you have to allow the guest to respond to that and get the last word on the topic or otherwise it's quite rude. And that then leads them to basically go around in a loop and, and reiterate the things that they've, that they've already said. And I guess maybe I'm more willing to to save the time and maybe just leave it ambiguous, like what my personal beliefs on any particular particular topic are. And hopefully people get they, they get the impression over time that just because I'm not actively disagreeing doesn't mean that I necessarily agree.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So on the other side, do you think there's any topics that maybe you've covered a bit too much?
3: Yeah, I guess people might suspect that because of our kind of problem priorities that we would have covered artificial intelligence to a like greatly disproportionate extent. But I think if people look at the look at the list of episodes, it's actually maybe surprising that we haven't covered it, haven't covered it more. So I think we're OK on that front. It's actually maybe, maybe possibly done too much on pandemics and biosecurity. I suppose the thing was we were already very interested in that before the COVID pandemic. And so we had a, maybe more like detailed content on how to use your career to end pandemics and probably was available anywhere else on the internet by, by far. Uh, and we had that before COVID. And then there was this extra impetus to produce a whole lot more more on that topic. And it's like we are maybe starting to reach saturation, where it's a little bit hard to find really new and important things to to say on that topic. At this point, maybe if, to, to produce more episodes about pandemic control, we have to start getting like to new things that people are doing right now that we're not available to talk about talk about two years ago. Which, which I guess is a is a large area at this point. But I guess another consideration weighing against doing too much of that is that there's now much more coverage of that in mainstream media, so less of a gap to fill.
0: Yeah, yeah, sure. Karen, do you have any any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah. I mean, one th- one thing is just that Rob and I take this fairly seriously. So like, you know, at the beginning of each basically quarters, uh, bouts at 80,000 hours, we sit down and we think about which topics we want to discuss. And we, we like carefully structure, like how we want the year to go. So uh, if we've been able to like notice a trend that we've, you know, we have gaps or like we've been doing too much for a certain episode, we do try to address that. So I think we're in a good position to not suddenly wake up one day and be like, wait a minute, was like 80% of episodes in the last year AI.
3: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hopefully we could avoid uh, mistakes like that. Yeah. I guess, yeah, probably the most common concern would be that a large fraction, a majority of our episodes come from a long-termist perspective. and We have much less coverage of near-term, more provable interventions than than the effective altruism community as a whole is interested in. I think... I think it's just defensible because that is the 80,000 hours perspective is that we think that long termism to some degree is true and that it's extremely important. And it would kind of be a betrayal of our of our own beliefs and our own views about how people can really have more impact to not make that clear on the podcast and produce information that is useful to allow people to have more impact from within that from within that worldview. But I suppose if you think it's wrong, then (laughs) it would mean that we're, uh, we're potentially wasting a lot of impact by focusing so much on that area.
1: Although we should, we should say that um, we have gone out of our way to have several episodes on global health and development this year, because we did realize that that was a gap. And so even though personally, Rob and I, you know, that's not the thing that we would work on directly with our careers, you know, we do recognize that it's important to have at least some coverage there. So we have, uh, we tried to fill that gap.
0: Yeah, th- that's a really like interesting point about how to balance like what you just genuinely believe is true with, I suppose, other considerations just from like my perspective, I mean, I found out about effective altruism through like well, like the very traditional, I guess, malaria relief or malaria prevention side of things. Do you think there is much value to like having podcasts on topics that like have a sort of wider, less niche appeal in order to like draw people in? Is that like disingenuous in any way?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a potentially important consideration in favor of covering a, a wide diversity of topics that it can bring in more listeners who have a wider range of initial interests and then cause them to happen to encounter like other ideas and, and other problems and, and learn about those as well and potentially broaden their horizons on what things that would be, be open to to working on. I suppose if we just focus very narrowly on on the handful of things that we thought were likely to be like highest impact then I think the show would become quite repetitive yeah. <laughs> and we wouldn't perhaps be like as intellectually flexible or as open to grappling with <laughs> grappling with reality as it's actually playing out in the in the real, real world as we are by I guess we try to strike a balance between like you know what would we prioritize if it was just our views only, and then what would we do if it was representative of the EA community as a whole. We try to go like somewhere somewhere in between, mm, yeah. uh, and I think that I think that's working reasonably well. It means that there's something on the show for for most people, if not everyone.
1: Yeah, and and also if we just focused on a half dozen topics that we thought were most important, we'd also in large part lose the secondary thing that we have, where we're trying to like teach people to basically think in this effective altruist way. Where it's like you know, you listen to episodes about AI. It's not as clear whether these lessons generalize to other problems in the world. But if you listen to an episode on, you know, like. Tristan Harris and like worrying about social media, or if you listen to uh, Jennifer Doliak on criminal justice reform, you listen to us go through like these very different problems with this effective altruist lens. Uh, I think you do have this benefit where you become more of like, yeah, I don't know, like you just basically become on board with this high level thing, which seems more important because obviously we could be wrong about these half a dozen causes that we're currently prioritizing.
0: Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, what, one thing, this is maybe slightly unrelated, but like maybe, maybe this is another one of my hot takes, but I think. In the EA community, maybe there could be some more work on communicating. Like, uh, this is one topic that I heard on your podcast with I think Holden Karnofsky, right? That um to, sort of like if you if you start out on like the global health and well being side and you just take the ideas very seriously, like in fact you do wind up thinking that like oh like working on like S risk or, or AI alignment is like the most important thing. So like maybe maybe there's something to be said for like really emphasizing how. There, there's like really like a, a serious intellectual continuity between saying like, oh, we should prevent people from dying from malaria, and then like winding up on saying like, oh, let's like work on AI alignment risk, for example. Uh, do you do you agree with that, or or do you think maybe that's uh, misguided?
3: Yeah, I mean that's that, that's my view, which is why why I've moved towards focusing on the on the long term stuff. I guess, I mean, the unifying theme is trying to do as much good as possible and then being willing to kind of quantify the impact that you're having and then be very open to a very wide range of different problems or different methods of having impact or different ways that you can get an edge over over other people. And yeah, I guess it, it would be a failure on our part if people thought that there was some like radical break between give well and, and long-termism. It's not really a disagreement about ends by and large. It's just a disagreement about means, about which means are... Are most likely to have an impact. And of course, given the magnitude of the question, of how could you have the most impact? It is no surprise that that people do come down all over the place on that. It's not not an easy one to answer. And yeah, I mean, the, the nice thing is that um, the introduction of that idea that we
1: should care about welfare impartially is pretty appealing to people. You just say like, okay, we don't we don't prioritize lives based on you know where people live, you know, or anything about them individually, and so people are like, yep, yeah, that's definitely true. And then like we you know, in the long-termist community say like, well, we also don't privilege people based on when they live. And that obviously sounds weird, but it is on this like same track. So yeah, I feel like it is, it's nice to have this continuity.
0: Awesome. Yeah. So do you think there's any other criticisms of the show that you think are legitimate that you'd like to sort of like comment on or, or give voice to?
1: One of them is that it's too long, which as we've talked about, you know, we have reasons for that. And the other thing is, yeah, that Rob speaks too fast. It's just, that is just like, it is like, I don't know, 30% of our, our, our negative feedback. It's just Rob speaks too fast. You've got to slow him down. You got to give him classes so he can speak uh, less quickly. But maybe a more serious one is that we're too elitist. That's maybe the more serious criticism of the show is that we're presenting these very high, you know, kind of intense topics sometimes. And if people are listening to them and feel like, well, maybe they can't even follow the episodes would be totally reasonable. But also they feel very much like, well, I can't go and work on AI alignment research. So well, then, you know, do I still have value in this community? And I think that's a real issue. And I think it's something that we should take seriously. But there is obviously this balance that we do. We do genuinely think that these topics are so important and we do think that we have to get this alignment problem right. And so the idea that there are people in this audience that can go and work on that. And so this is part of why we have so we cover so many different topics where it's like we want to be creating these episodes where it's like, okay, that that person who can go and work on ALM research, you know, in the next year, in the next five years, that person needs to get that episode. But also we don't want to do that at the cost of having everyone else be totally demoralized because there are so many other different important problems in the world. Uh, and we basically want to have this thriving, like, big community, and you know, and, and so it's why, like, I take seriously the idea that we should really be trying to promote these memes where you can be a really great, effective altruist or a great long termist without having this intense job. Like, just I think Holden talked about this in his episode, where it's like the idea that. Just by being interested in these topics and talking about them with your friends, that's already you're being you're doing a great job. Like this is just a thing where it's like, you know, you shouldn't feel bad about not contributing in this way because maybe that person's gonna go and either do work themselves or maybe they'll like go and talk to someone else who's gonna do this sort of work. And even if they don't, obviously, like even if we think that AI element research is like more pressing than working on, on animal welfare, say, like it doesn't mean that animal welfare work isn't important. Like that's still super important, like more important than almost anything that anyone's doing in the world.
3: It's just there are the things that are like even more important.
0: Yeah.
3: Yeah, it's an interesting kind of flip side of the fact that we're actually action oriented and trying to think about what ought someone to do in the audience or or in general. I mean, it's the case with most documentaries or like most content that you would find in newspapers or on television that the people featured a lot of the time are very impressive and perhaps more expert in some area than most of the people in the viewing audience are about anything, about anything in particular. But people, I guess, don't find that intimidating because they're not closing with the like, and here's how you can be like this person or how you should be like that, like that person. It is just, yeah, it's, it's quite a difficult spot to be in because we both want to be focused on actually having impact and encouraging people to actually think about what they what they can really do at the same time in general you want to be interviewing people who are doing something that's kind of successful at least in, in some way or who like have some impressive knowledge that they have that like other people might might not have and that's kind of necessarily somewhat intimidating to folks who find like the comparison between them where they're at and where someone being interviewed is at. Yeah, I don't think there's there's a super simple resolution to that. I guess Kieran's in favor of people changing their mentality so that they don't make those kind of, they're not thinking all the time, like, how do I compare to, to this particular person? I guess I don't, I don't generally do that or I don't have a lot of that insecurity about comparing myself to, to exactly how well other folks are doing. And I think people just vary a lot on how, how much they're inclined to think that way and how difficult it is, it is for them to stop.
0: Yeah, t- taking it like a just going off of this topic and, and stepping away from the podcast for for a bit. Maybe this is like a little bit like self defensive or like self promotional but so like you know here we are at Georgetown University, which is like not like an Ivy League school until until like literally a couple weeks ago, there was no EA community. So like sort of like one thought I've had in general is that maybe there has been a little bit of like a disproportionate focus on literally like the top ranked universities in the world as like low lo- 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 side. Low guy for um for effective altruism do you think that's like a legitimate area that ea could improve in or is it maybe i mean like i'm definitely open to the idea that maybe like the most sort of influential powerful people in the world are going to be coming from harvard and oxford and so like ea kind of should just focus focus on those schools
3: yeah well i mean i guess i don't make decisions about that in general we're making the show and people can subscribe to it anywhere and we I guess, advertise pretty broadly so we're, we're not super targeted on on ivy league schools or anything but I guess more broadly, I guess it is true that effective altruism has gotten more traction at more elite schools. And I guess some people have to kind of double down on that and thought, well, we should like the Cambridge group is doing really, really well. So we should focus a lot of energy on on making the, the Cambridge a student group continue to continue to really thrive. I mean, it's just a difficult trade off. If you focus on those elite schools, potentially the people there have already been filtered for having a lot of promising qualities that might allow them to be very influential in future. And then people are right to point out that they get a particular privilege from having gotten through the door in the first place from having gotten admitted that provides extra privileges, extra advantages that might allow them to be more powerful or richer or, or whatever else in future. Potentially, that does provide an an additional reason to focus on on their views. I mean, to some extent, it would be negligent to think, well, if the U.S. is organized in a very unfair way, such that students who went to particular colleges, they just have much more influence over policy to not then think, well, we need to make sure that their views are not terrible, even from the point of view of like, well, we need to persuade them perhaps to overturn this unfair system in which most people don't have much hope of hope of entering politics. I think, on the other hand, the Ivy League schools only have a tiny number of students relative to the number of students in the u s as, as a whole, so focusing just on that group, even if they 're somewhat more promising or even if they 're like somewhat more technically talented you 're missing out on like great majority of talent out there like i didn 't go to a particularly elite school. <laughs> I think like the majority of actually staff at eighty thousand hours never went to an equivalently Ivy League level prestigious school. And I guess that that's reflective of the fact that even if someone who went to Harvard is very promising in their ability to have an impact or their probability of being interested in effective altruist ideas, just the base rate <laughs> says that even if you know, students at universities in general are a 10th as promising or a 100th as promising, still the majority of people are going to be coming from all of those other schools. So yeah, that, that definitely shouldn't, shouldn't be forgotten. I suppose if I was going to defend the decision, I might say, well, effective altruism is tiny. It's like the great majority of people, even in groups that you might think would have heard of effective altruism or have some understanding of the ideas, have never heard of it basically at all. And the number of staff involved in promoting the ideas is actually incredibly small, such that they're reasonably flat out just making sure that the student groups at, you know, 12 or 30 universities are going well, let alone being able to scale up groups that are working well at at hundreds. So it's not surprising, perhaps, that they're focused at schools where where the traction was initially pretty high. And fingers crossed, over time, they'll figure out they'll figure out a recipe that's scalable to a much larger group of people.
1: I think I think in thinking about trying to address this, I mean, the things we can do to you know, to you know to, to mitigate this a little bit, I think it pushes us in the direction of actually trying to talk a little bit more about this this mental health stuff. Because let's say you take someone who maybe someone like Howie actually who like went to Yale and has this like incredibly impressive CV. He looks like, you know, just on paper, looks like very scary, very intimidating, uh, very much like, you know, well, you can never do what he does. And then suddenly you, like, hear his story and suddenly it's like, oh, actually, like, yes, he is, you know, in this privileged position in some ways. And like, yes, he's like super impressive in these other ways. But you have these huge advantages over Howie, probably, where it's like, oh, you don't have to deal with like all of this other stuff. So it's actually like this thing where it's like people are like, Maybe a little bit too obsessed over like where someone went to school, where it's like, oh, that's like the important thing. That's the thing that people really value. And it's like, well, yeah, but there are like you know all these other other ways in which you can have these edges. And yeah, so I think like I don't know, just trying to like demystify some of these people, where it's like rather than being like, okay, this person is working on this really important research and they went to X school and like they're kind of scary, being like, well, no, they're actually just people too. And so like presenting stories, um, people like you know us. I mean, you know, Rob went to a, I think I think you would say maybe ANU is more impressive than. The Melbourne? I don't know if that's true. But anyway, like, you know, I, I also went to like non-impressive impressive schools, but like here we are, like people think Rob and I are doing good work. And it's just, yeah, I mean, I think this is part of part of the value of the podcast is trying to just be like, well, you know, Rob and I and like our guests, like we're just kind of regular people. We're not like scary robots.
3: Yeah. Something I didn't say earlier is that obviously people have a huge bias in how they perceive, uh, how impressive they perceive guests to be because (laughs) the guests have an awful lot of advantages that we cut out anything stupid that they say. And when they um and are and like get something wrong, it's not a problem at all. They they sound incredibly fluent because it's been edited to a substantial degree. We're also playing on like the ideal home turf for them because we choose the topic on which they are particularly excellent. And we also like often will interview them naturally at a time when they're doing particularly well because we're like thinking, well, you know, who's really on it at the moment and what and what stuff can, can we learn from them? Yeah, I mean, that that's one thing to point
1: out actually is that a lot of our guests, you know, who don't have a lot of experience are super nervous when they come on the show. And part of that is because they feel intimidated by our previous guests. So it's like, they, they're going to be like, you know, someone in the future is going to be intimidated by them, but they're intimidated by everyone else. And part of it is this thing where like, it's one of the drawbacks to like presenting someone's best view is like people generally sound very smart on a show, including Rob. Rob sounds way smarter on our show than he does in real life. And that's just the nature of the show, you know, that's the nature of the
3: editing.
0: Rob, do you want to defend yourself and then say that you're even smarter in real life? No,
3: absolutely not. Another factor I haven't even mentioned yet is uh, people will often, they'll think, Oh, you know this particular guest, you know Mushtak, for example, is just so on it with his ability to like explain economic concepts and how much he's thought about institutional economics and how politics works and so on. I could never compare to that. Of course, like keep in mind, Mushtak is sixty and he's been doing this for thirty-five years, so he's like really at the kind of the peak of his career. And you wouldn't expect that anyone who was twenty or twenty-five or even thirty would have necessarily any level like that level of expertise in, in, in any particular thing. So it can be quite an unfair comparison. And the other thing is, Mushtaq is probably like bad at a whole bunch of stuff. <laughs> he probably has a whole bunch of weaknesses that are not getting highlighted in this format, areas in his life where someone else could be way better. Like maybe he's, I don't mean to single out Mushtak. I have no idea, but maybe Mushtak is very disorganized and he desperately needs someone who is able to be a fantastic executive assistant or someone who's able to like manage the organization or like manage people in a way that he's, he's not suited to do because he's too much of an academic and too in his head. So you don't need to, necess- like, this is what shouldn't be imagining in each case. It's like, how do I compare with this guest on their, like, area of greater strength, but rather thinking, like, can I develop any aptitude that's useful to, to some high level? I think the odds of that is, like, much higher, close to 100% for most listeners.
1: Yeah, I mean, the other thing that I, there's it, a very important meme to me, which Rob touched on earlier, that I think the most important thing is the good is done in the universe. And I think we have this tendency in effect of altruism to feel like we kind of need to be contributing ourselves. Like it's very important that like we're the ones who are actually like actively contributing and that everyone sort of, you know, is aware of that. And I feel like if we could... You know, get this meme out there and kind of transition to the point of like, well, the thing I really want is for like the best person to get that job. See, and then you apply for a job and you don't get it. And assuming that you think that the people running that organization are competent, then you're like, well, yeah, a better person got that job. That's actually good for the universe intellectually. And obviously, this is very difficult and very sympathetic to challenges for people who like you know can't can't get these sort of jobs. But it is possible to just have this reframing where it's like, actually. I don't need my name on that paper or, you know, I don't need that job or like, I don't need to have the job where I can like donate millions of dollars. I'm just very keen on the world going really well. And I think it's like both healthier and more satisfying for you individually and just like better for the community.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's a really, really great point. Maybe Rob, do you want to talk about some, like what kind of things get left out of the show that yeah. Yeah. Maybe like at the interview, but then don't wind up in the final cut.
3: Oh, wow. I think you should definitely ask Kieran for that. Yeah, I, I actually kind <laughs> <laughs> of. I guess I, I basically the situation we have now is I record the interviews and then I hand it to Kieran and he fixes up all of the mistakes that I've made and I, and I, <laughs> and I barely have to think about it, which is fantastic as a host. Uh, and yeah, Kieran would be very difficult to replace with uh, so many years of experience knowing exactly how to do that.
0: Yeah, Kieran. Okay, Kieran. Do, do <laughs> yeah. you want to take
3: I, I, yeah, I really appreciate that
1: you're, uh, you're trying to use Rob's advice of like, you know, asking one question to one of us and one to the other. But this <laughs> is what happened to me. <laughs> Very specific to me. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it, um, it varies hugely depending on the episode. So, I mean, sometimes we have episodes that are just need virtually no editing. So that one example was we did an episode with Cal Newport recently, and he's such a polished speaker that I think almost... I made no cuts. It was crazy, but it was just like the whole episode was just like, that was basically just what the conversation was. We only had it for two hours and just that's basically what you hear. And in some cases, like we say, like we're very open to doing multiple recordings. Uh, sometimes we can record for, you know, like a 10, 12, 14 hours or something and it'll end up being like a two-hour episode. Oh, uh, and, and, and a nice compliment is that I f- feel like people don't know when it's been a real nightmare at it. <laughs> we, we've, never gotten, we've never gotten any feedback where it was like, oh, obviously, like that was from multiple sessions and like this was, you know, jumping around all the time. So, um, yeah, no, it, it just really depends on the guest. And, and we're very open to having people who don't have a lot of experience. But it, it just means the, like, you know, you, you have this option of getting really brilliant people who have these incredible ideas, but they've never done any podcasts before because, I mean, that's just not the kind of thing. But that will mean that there's a, there's a lot it's to be added out. Yeah, so we have these multiple stages. So um, we have a, a terrific audio engineer, Ben Cordell, who does like the first stage for me now. I used to have to do this stuff in the early days, but Ben does it for me now. Where it's just taking out all of the filler words and the false starts. Like you know, often people start a sentence and they go, "Uh, wait a minute, let me start it again," or or it'll just be like you know, random like jumbled words. And so we take all of that out to just basically clean up the audio, and then it's sent to me, and then I make the editorial cuts, which is that you know, we have like a series of things, like sometimes questions just don't go anywhere. So like we'll ask a question, the guests will just say something like, I don't really have a good answer for that. Or they'll give an answer that's kind of a non-answer where they probably should have passed, but they didn't because just you know you kind of feel obligated to say things. And sometimes we have full sections that didn't quite work. So I'll, I'll do a lot of like rearranging sometimes. Uh, we really try and make sure the most engaging section comes at the start. So actually sometimes the section that you hear at the start of an episode happened three hours in. And it's just like that's that was the best bit. and so as long as and so as long as we haven't like created these contingencies where it's like, people keep saying like, well, that's what we're talking
3: about earlier. Yeah. That's, a, that's a, that's another piece of advice that, that Kieran will have. I, I can, I can hear him feeling un, <laughs> unhappy on the other end of the line when we're recording and we've created a dependency we we've like <laughs> referred back to something in the past as we're doing right now, and, <laughs> uh, which is then going to make it, make his editing job uh, enormously harder potentially if we want to rearrange.
2: So, so Kieran, you're, you're doing all of that behind the scenes work like that. That's all you, or do you have like a broader team that's, that's helping you with all this?
1: Yeah, so I, I sort of lead the team. So basically, as Rob said, like, you know, we're a four-person team. So we have, you know, we have Rob as the host, and then I'm the producer and the editor. And then we have Ben Cordell, who's on audio engineering. And then we have Katie Moore. She basically does all the work with the transcripts. That used to be Sophia Davis-Vogel, who people have probably heard her name a lot. And so basically, like, yeah, so I have, so I'm I'm managing those two. And between the four of us, we're taking care of all this. Wow,
0: that's cool, awesome. So okay, no, <laughs> backing up a little bit. So, like, Rob, I know, I've, like, heard you talk on both the ADK show and other shows about how you really like podcasting as a medium and like i'll just say as a listener like same here that's like probably like the main way that i consume information i've listened to like probably most of the eighty thousand hours podcast and i feel like i've learned so much so could you just like talk a little bit about whether you think podcasting is like a good medium and if so uh, what sort of advantages it has over like articles and blogs and stuff like that
3: Yeah. So I guess none of these thoughts are original, but I guess they they do just jump out a lot of the a lot of the benefits that you get from podcasting. So I suppose because it's so much cheaper to create, there are just a lot of shows now, which some people kind of gripe about. It's like, oh, everyone has a podcast now. Isn't everyone like wildly narcissistic and crazy to think that anyone wants to listen to them? (laughs) But it's a little bit now like blogging kind of was in the 2000s where it was like, actually, it turns out that lots of people knew a little bit about something or other, or at least they wanted to express their their, their thoughts on things. And often there's like an, an audience, even if it's like only 100 people who are interested in this very niche topic, where you can go into a lot of detail and actually kind of access some of the knowledge that would otherwise never be published because it's too difficult to do it. Yeah, that, that's one benefit that podcasts have, which is you can have a show about like something very specific, like a specific industry in a specific city. And even if there's a small audience, it can be can be worth producing for that group. I guess also it's just the fact that there's no kind of length limit allows you to go into detail in a way that kind of mainstream media never, never would. You would never get a TV show that's four hours of me interviewing someone about, you know, <laughs> different theories of consciousness. It would never, it would never make the cut. Nor, nor really would it on, on radio or anywhere else that I, that I can think of. But there is just a significant audience, I think, out there that is hungry for more depth than they were getting from the kinds of shows that are available on, on TV or radio or elsewhere, or even really blog posts, which, <laughs> which unless someone is willing to put in an, an awful lot of effort, are not going to go into as much detail as a really long form interview interview might.
0: Yeah, I think that's a that's a great point, especially about the, the length, which I know you talked about before. And I know the 80,000 hour show is much longer than other podcasts tend to be. So could you just like lay out the case for why you think podcasts in general should be like longer than they generally are?
3: Yeah. So so the first thing is what I was saying before that there's this niche for this particular format where I've like, this is what you should listen to if you want to if you want to actually know a ton about this topic rather than just get the superficial story again. There's also this economic case that I've written up, which is basically that if you're going to interview someone at all, you have to put uh, if you're going to do a good job, you have to put in a bunch of time preparing, like reading their book or like getting to understand their general shtick, their like general worldview in order to be able to ask good questions. And kind of that that upfront cost and the cost of getting them to have their microphone set up and, and getting them to actually book a time, that's kind of the same whether you interview them for 20 minutes or interview them for four hours. So there is some incremental variable cost in interviewing people for longer. I guess it takes up a, a bit more time on their part. Kieran has to do a whole lot, whole lot more editing as well. But nonetheless, you get like a lot of economies of scale, basically, by interviewing fewer people, but interviewing them at much greater length. And I think we often find that the best content comes in like the third or fourth hour of an interview, because at least from my point of view, that's when you've gotten past them, like just describing the basics of their book, which someone could hear on another show if they wanted to, because they're probably doing the rounds appearing in lots of other, lots of other programs. That's when you get into like truly fresh material where it's like, we've gone back several, like, they've like said one thing and I've responded and they've said another thing and I've responded. And we actually get down to like considerations that are a lot deeper than you would typically find in any other conversation
0: yeah, one of my, like, uh, pet peeves, I guess, is just, like, you'll, you'll, I'll, like, notice when, like, somebody, like, an author is making the rounds like, on a podcast, like, you'll get, yeah, somebody just wrote a book, and they'll show up on, like, every single show in, like, the technocratic, like, political, like, EA kind of, like, sub-podcast sphere or whatever. Um, And so, like, one thing I really appreciated about the 80,000-hour show is that you guys definitely do have, like, some authors, but it doesn't tend to just be, like, the people who just wrote a book or something. So, like, I feel like that's probably, like, an overrated consideration. It just, like, Like literally authors just like making, yeah, like making the rounds and like, yeah, but probably saying the same thing over and over
3: it's such an overrated consideration that I think people actually just go out and write books basically so they can get on a whole lot of shows uh, to talk about the book. Oh, wow. uh, they already know the ideas, but like people won't have them on until they've, uh, they've blessed them with a, <laughs> with a book. Yeah. Our, our, our idea is, well, we'll like let them do all of those other shows and then we'll listen to it and then we'll interview them later. And we can kind of react to everything that they've produced uh, when, when they, when they were doing the rounds, so to speak. And then the other thing we do is um, often we'll take a talk that someone's uh, given already.
1: And we'll like put that at the beginning of that episode, just to like, you know, give the, give the audience like a refresher on the things that they would have said, but then we get to keep the whole three hours to to get into novel material.
0: Right. That
2: makes sense. So we touched on some of like the great things about podcasting. I was just kind of curious guys of what you guys thought about the drawbacks to podcasting.
3: Yeah, I guess, well, the flip side of being able to go into lots of detail is that you can suffer from verbal diarrhea, I suppose, that there's, there's not a lot of pressure to make sure that you're asking like absolutely the best question, potentially, at least in long form, long form interview. So I guess that's, I think that's a turn off for some people. We do get some folks email in who say, oh, you know, I would love to listen to it. If you could make it a lot tighter, could you like make the show half an hour rather than four hours? Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but you have to Don't see, do it. Uh, yeah, you, maybe you should read the key points on the website. Maybe that's the yeah, the the right product for you. I guess possibly, so other benefits, I guess, is that you potentially people build like quite a strong connection with with the host, with the guests. They like feel like they're really getting to know them because you're able to convey so much more subtlety, so much more personality uh, through the medium. I guess a dark side of that, I think, is that potentially people can start to find you too compelling. And I think we see that with some interview shows where some of the most famous hosts, I think, are taken perhaps a little bit too seriously, or people get like deeply, like personally invested in them, and then and then start to really care about what they think. And the thing is, like, I'm not actually an expert on almost any of the things that are that are getting covered. I'm not actually really a super expert in any particular one topic, and I, I'm always offering my amateur opinions. I think as people find them entertaining, <laughs> keeps keeps the keeps the show high energy potentially. But I think people should people should bring a healthy dose of skepticism to what people are saying on on podcasts, because it is so easy to say stuff, and obviously there's no citations.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, for the topics that we discuss, if you're talking about relative to other mediums that we could use, like, you know, if Rob and I were off like writing a book or something, we're talking about topics where it can be really helpful to have, you know, to have data, to have visualizations, to have, you know, graphs and figures and, you know, to be able to actually walk people through these really complicated topics. So sometimes we we do run into the situation where the topic is fascinating. We love it. And like the fact that we've really engaged in it in preparation means that, you know, basically we can follow, but then, you know, we share it with people for the first time. And they're like, I just couldn't follow of that at all and it totally makes sense if if you're totally new to this topic so yeah it's just like there are some topics that is very hard to to explain properly just in audio
0: yeah
2: as again to preface for like the millionth time as someone who's quite new to ea i have kind of been like growing up in through the eighty thousand hours podcast like that's where i'm getting consuming a lot of my ea information Um, so i was just kind of curious if you ever do worry about being quite literally the voice of ea and like what people hear about ea
3: Basically, yeah. It's something that we've explicitly talked about that we don't want to be the case for various different reasons. I mean, it's not exclusively an issue for the podcast. It's also an issue for 80,000 Hours as a whole. That 80,000 Hours mission, our approach is not to represent the views of the effective altruism community. We're not going out and like surveying everyone who identifies as an effective altruist and like seeing what they think and then bringing that together. It's the opinions of people who work at 80,000 Hours and like nothing more and nothing less. But I guess there was a period, I think a couple of years ago, where we were producing significantly more content for people to consume, like things that people would be interested in reading and listening to, than most other other groups were. So it was just the practical case that people, if they, especially if they were engaging, maybe superficially, if you're the kind of person who's like kind of interested in effective altruism and sometimes clicks on links on Twitter, basically eighty thousand hours, what like you would naturally come to think that well, we just represent the views of of everyone who's involved. Yeah, it's a it's a difficult one. I mean, we, we can like explicitly disclaim that that's not the case, but I don't think that that's going to to move the needle very much. It's one reason why we've like definitely never renamed the show the Effective altruism Podcast, even though we cover a whole lot of effective altruism themed topics. I think the solution and a solution that is beginning to happen is just that other organizations are producing more content. So the Effective Activism Forum has more and more interesting stuff to read on it that helps to like counterbalance our opinions because there is just a huge range of views on what are the top priorities and, and how things ought to be fixed. Like I guess there's other podcasts starting up like you guys. There's also uh, <laughs> here this idea. I'm just seeing like more competing content that I feel like we, we've got to be, we've got to stay on top of our game because uh, people have other things to consume in the effective altruism uh, content space these days. So hopefully that will over time reduce the sense that eighty thousand hours is synonymous with effective altruism, which dear listeners it is not.
1: It is a tricky balance though because you know we do have this position you know in this community where people do listen to us. So if we create content, you know, it will actually get some reach. So I mean, an example is that we just created this secondary feed called Effective and Introduction a few months ago and like that came with this criticism where it was like by calling it effective altruism and introduction you're kind of it seems like you're kind of representing the community and then you know the 10 episodes we picked became somewhat controversial because they weren't designed to actually accurately represent the community it was more of like well this is just 80,000 hours is you know way that we're going to introduce this we were thinking of it as being this high level feed what was about you know how you think about these ideas but the fact that we didn't have episodes on for example animal welfare or global development seem to be a problem because that is you know they, those are very popular causes in the movement and we are like trying to address that we're going to like do it, you know, a second second favor it's like effective altruism 10 global problems that's going to probably be less controversial but yeah it is it is a thing where it's like once we put that up it does get a lot of listens. so like it seems like we're kind of leaving value on the table if we're too hesitant about being associated with effective altruism at the same time all of rob's concerns are true so yeah it is it's, it's this tricky thing
0: in your defense i mean like i'm trying to think Maybe, maybe by listening to the 80,000 hours podcast, like people actually are getting like a fair representation of like, what could reasonably be called like the effective altruist perspective, then if they just sort of consumed any other amount of medium for the same time, like, I suppose there's no excellent way to like, make sure that somebody's getting like an absolutely uh, like unbiased, completely like point of view, neutral sort of perspective. I mean, so... But also maybe maybe I just like agree with ADK too much and
3: so like yeah <laughs> yeah I mean we're definitely not representative in in some ways so I think like half of donations among people who identify as effective altruists is going towards global development but I would say you know global development is only about ten percent of the episode so that's that's maybe a case where there's like the most. Glaring difference between what the community as a whole is is interested in and what and what we focus on. Uh, I suppose many, many people know eighty thousand hours leans towards a long termist perspective. So we tend to be interested in this like new technologies, regulation of new technologies, ways things could go wrong, like how could we steer culture in the right direction in, in the long term. We don't exclusively cover those things. We also want to cover other topics that listeners are potentially interested in, and we also want to, as you were suggesting, we want to demonstrate kind of how people with an effective altruist mindset think across across a range of different problem areas. Because it's not only about the specific information, say, about projects animal welfare or projects in development. It's also about showing people how or they think through new problems in their own career in order to figure out how to have more impact. And that's potentially like very cross-cutting.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. And like you mentioned, global development is something that's like, uh, you guys maybe cover less than is represented in the A community. From my, my personal perspective, it's like, I'm quite passionate about animal welfare. And so you guys have definitely had Bruce Friedrich on, and I know you've covered the, the topic. But it does seem like not only 80,000 hours, but also sort of effective altruism in general. Um, Maybe people who take the ideas very seriously, like tend to be a little bit more like long termist, maybe give more weight to like AI and uh, existential risk and things like that. And so I'm just wondering, moving on a little bit from the the pure podcasting side, do you think that there's like a little bit of an optimism bias in effective altruism where nobody wants to think about sort of like really negative topics like animal suffering? Or or do you think that like maybe like uh, I have the wrong perspective here?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, so there's a couple of things going on here. Like one is that I do think typically the effective altruism community is made up of very cheerful people. And we do focus on, on this long-termism stuff, but within long-termism, you can be very worried about, about suffering as I am personally, and I know Rob is as well. And a lot of us really do care about animal welfare. And we do have, and we do have several episodes on there. It it is just like, this is a matter of, you know, the sort of the core of effective altruism where, you know, you can't focus on everything equally. And so the fact that we don't focus as much on one doesn't mean that we don't care about. I mean, like, you know, I think both Rob and I are just absolutely horrified by the horrors of factory farming. Viscerally, like, it is something that, like, really bothers me in a way that a few other things does. But if I sit down and just actually think about these ideas, for me, it's difficult to make the case that it is, you know, of comparable importance to AI, in my opinion. And then, you know, Rob has fairly similar views. And so the question is, well, in making a show, the 80,000 Hours podcast, you know, should we follow what we think is best? You know, should we focus on these problems that we, you know, personally think are, are the most important or do we, yeah, try and like, you know, lean back and say like, well, this is, you know, this is a more accurate representation of the entire community. And, you know, we we, sh- we try and do, you know, we try and do a little bit of both, but yeah, I'm not sure, I'm not sure if that answered your question very well.
0: No, no, no. I, I think that's a good, I, I think, I think it really did. And because like, uh, it's like totally, it seems totally plausible to me that like there could be some sort of like. Bias initially, but like in the end, like it, it might just be the right answer to like focus on X risk and AI stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, I also have like very conflicting sort of intuitions, and like yeah, when I think things through, yeah, I'm like persuaded by long termism. So I definitely sympathize with your with your whole answer.
1: Oh, I was going to say, um, so one thing is that um, just focusing on long termism isn't inherently positive. So I mean, I am actually more so than I think maybe anyone said eighty thousand hours. I really care about or like interested in mitigating S-risks. So these are these risks of astronomical suffering. And that to me is not, it's often like sort of framed as like, well, you know, there are these long-termists and there's other people who like care about S-risk. And it's like, well, no, if you care about s risks, like you are a long-termist. Like this is over the very long, long time periods. And so you can be like entirely motivated by suffering and still be a dyed-in-the-wool long-termist. Like these things are, that they go together, potentially.
0: Yeah, no, I was not doing that perspective justice. And yeah, no, I definitely like to hear what do you think are some promising interventions right now in like the S-risk sort of space to like, do you think it's like, should we just be focusing on research um, to like see how tractable things are? Do you think there's anything more concrete that we can do to reduce the risk of of S-Risks?
1: Yeah. So basically I think, I think kind of a nice coincidence is that the best work to reduce the the chance of S-Risks is also just fantastic work on mitigating just AI risk generally. So it is just, it is just like so tied up. So it's like, yeah, I mean, I, I've like been fairly involved with people who are working on this most, and they do have this like really interesting work. But as yet, it does. There's not this big divergence where it's like, well, I have to like make this decision whether or not to focus on you know the more classic AI risk mitigation and these risks. So basically it's like AI goes well and we just don't have to worry about asterisks basically. So you can have these two communities who might have like very different value systems, but who can just actually coordinate. So that's like the thing I'm most excited about coming out from folks working on this is this focus on coordination. They take it very seriously. And yeah, I think that's fantastic.
3: Great. Just, just backing up. It's kind of interesting to, well, let's like pause and think through this question of, is there an optimism bias in effective altruism? I guess, in general, it doesn't seem like there's an optimism bias among human beings. If anything, it seems like people tend to be biased towards remembering bad things that happened to them and being annoyed by that, and then worrying about things that could go wrong in future. So this would this would be going against going against the, the stream, I think, if effective altruists had a, had a different thing and were generally focused on only thinking about ways that things could go well. I guess if you look at the stuff that the effective altruism community is worried about, it's true factory farming isn't like the number one intervention in terms of people's efforts or, or donations. But we talk more about terrible suffering on factory farms or like terrible suffering in the wilderness than basically almost any other group other than <laughs> other than communities that are specifically focused on on animal rights and animal welfare. Even within long termism, where perhaps people are a bit more optimistic about how well the future will go, <laughs> the main focus for the last 20 years has been ways that we could go extinct and the ways that things could go horribly. And there's many people who think, you know, there's more than a 10% chance that this century all of us are going to be destroyed and everything we care about <laughs> will be ruined, which actually, I mean, that's a very common view among the general public. So it actually isn't that different than the than the background rate. But it doesn't seem to suggest that there's a kind of Panglossian bias, at least among people involved in ineffective altruism. I suppose on the poverty side, I think. Most people focused on that are probably optimistic that in the fullness of time over hundreds of years, or possibly even in the next few decades, we can we can largely eliminate extreme poverty or we'll get a, we'll get a long way towards massively improving the well-being of people in, in countries that are currently very poor. But I think if you look at the evidence, there's like pretty good reasons to think that. So, yeah, I don't, I don't see that much reason to think that the community is biased towards uh, yeah naive like optimism. I think that's a really good point. Yeah, I was just going to say that, let's say you take people who work on extreme
1: pandemics or preventing nuclear war, and they're thinking through these scenarios. Like, these are very grim scenarios. Like, this is like, <laughs> this isn't like, oh, they're waking up and just like, you know, with a sunny disposition and a song in their heart, just thinking like, oh, nuclear war. Oh, what an incredible thing to work on. Like, no, this is like, it's just also this incredible suffering. It's just in these uh, these different avenues.
0: Yeah. I mean, just thinking out loud, like I was like, I'm trying to figure out what I was getting at when I wrote this. And I think, maybe it's something like descriptive pessimism, but like normative, just to be like super like annoyingly like philosophical about it, but like nor- like normative, normative like optimism bias. So like people can say like, oh, we have these very bad problems. Like they're really serious. Like right now, like there's a high risk of extinction and, and things like that. But then I do think there might be a sense of like nobody wants to say, oh, like actually like it would be good <laughs> if we didn't last like that much longer or anything like that. Uh, do, do you have any comment on, like, yeah, maybe this, like, normative descriptive distinction in terms of, like, optimism and pessimism?
3: I mean, the possibility that the future will be negative has been discussed a lot. I mean, yeah, it's interesting when you, when you survey the general public on things. <laughs> Not only do they think that a catastrophe is, is quite likely, many people, like, when they're, you know... Talking about this at the pub, or indeed are like surveyed surveyed on this by someone who phones them to ask their opinions. They often are like very pessimistic. They say, "Oh, who knows whether it would be bad if if humanity went extinct?" And it's a bit hard to know whether that is just someone saying something interesting or whether that's a that's a that's a real opinion. But in, in effective altruism as well, like at places like the Future of Humanity Institute, people have thought a lot about what are the prospects for things going well. What's the prospects for ways that you could end up with a lot of suffering locked in for a long period of time? I think most of the people who've thought about this a lot tend to lean towards thinking that there's going to be like more good stuff in the future and expectation than than bad stuff, mostly because there's strong incentives to create that. If you're going out into space and like making use of all of the energy and stars and things like that, it's not obvious like what strong motivation people have to create suffering or to create other other harmful things, but it's clear why someone would be motivated to go and like run instances of of themselves having a having a great time so there's like broad considerations like that broad worldview issues that I think cause people to say, well, even though it's potentially quite a risky gamble, there's good reasons to think that the future is going to have like a predominance of of positive stuff
2: yeah. And yeah. I guess- well, I guess just on that note, Kieran, I'll throw this one at you, but do you think that the world is net positive and how confident are you in that?
1: Yeah, sure. No, that relates to what I was going to say, actually. I was going to say that um, I think a common view is to look around the world and see so much suffering and go like, "Wow, well, this seems pretty terrible. And certainly historically and be like a pull that, you know, this historical injustice and suffering that's going on to this point and think, well, things just aren't great. So like if, the world, if we just all like died in our sleep painlessly tonight, how bad would it be? And I think you can basically have that view and still work on the things that 80,000 Hours recommends because you can accept the view that it's like, well, up to this point, the world has been net negative. I'm not saying that it is or not. I'm very uh, uncertain about that. But you can have that view and still be like, well, that doesn't mean that we're not going to get, things aren't going to get way better as we develop technology. So it seems like, you know, um, actually, I'd be interested to know what the median view is of EA's here, but I'm not at all confident that even the world today is net positive. Like, I, I'm not, I'm just very like, I don't know. Nor am I. But but I would just say like, but I'm very optimistic that we can get to a point where it will be. And then once you get to that point, it's not like that just ends where it's like, okay, we're like a bit net positive. The prospect we have in, in store is that things could get incredibly positive. Like once we get things right, things can go very right. That's the kind of thing that motivates a lot of people in, in EA.
2: So we we don't know now, but we could be net positive. I'm, I'm actually curious. What do you, what do you, yeah. I'd um, that up, one I one mean,
0: of you. Uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> thank, thank you. Um, uh, I think like in terms of humans, I'm like uncertain, but like, I feel, feel like when you throw in like wild animals and factory farming, it's like almost positive, certain that like right now the world is like a bad place. I'd like find it very hard to believe that like the billions of animals that we're torturing, like any sort of like normal experience like outweighs that. Like, I'm pretty pretty persuaded that, like, yeah, wild animals are, like, probably having a pretty bad time also. I mean, and, like, yeah, so so, so, so that's what it seems like to me. Um, what about you, Garnie?
2: I guess I think I'm just wired oddly optimistically, and I've always just been someone that's, like, there's more good than bad, more good than bad. But that also just could be, like, the problems that I've been born into. And, yeah, after learning more about the A community at large, I guess I'd have to agree with you in that it is more bad than good right now, except, however, I'm completely aligned with Kieran in that I think in our coming generation, we could switch it towards being a little more good than bad.
3: I'm, I'm optimistic of
2: that. But Rob, I don't think we got your, your full answer on
3: that. Oh, yeah, I mean... At present, yeah, I think I've explicitly said on the show that I, I really don't have a great sense of whether there's more good than bad in the world currently, uh, and basically for the reasons you gave. That I guess with humans it's unclear, and then with factory found animals it seems like negative, and then with wild animals probably probably also negative. I mean, I would say it's like it's a bit more uncertain than you're saying because it's just like so hard to weight these different experiences against one another, and it's also very hard to know how much to weight a chicken's experience as against a cow's experience as against a person's experience. Maybe there's maybe there's some way that you could make things look positive if you if you, if you chose the right number. Numbers. but yeah and I, I would also guess probably that because wild animals probably don't have a good time like there's been more suffering than than pleasure up to up to the present time over the last four billion years but at least the trends over the last few hundred years seem to be pretty positive as we've learned more how to use technology to make life better for us we've more often used that at least for humans, to make our lives better than we've used it to, to harm others. Just for the obvious reason that it's expensive and annoying to use your energy and your money to harm other people. Yeah. And it doesn't really like get you anything in, in particular. Whereas like, spending your money in order to, to benefit you has the obvious <laughs> benefit that people, people enjoy experiencing pleasure. And there's potentially good reasons to think that just as technology continues to improve, we will find more and more ways to benefit ourselves and even get rid of the remaining cases like factory farming, where we feel like it 's cheaper to benefit ourselves by by harming others, you would hope that over the course of possibly even decades, but if not decades then centuries that there 'll no longer be that that incentive to to harm animals in order to produce meat more cheaply. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, the people who want to claim that the future is negative in expectation or at least contains a lot of negativity turn towards situations where it turns out, for example, that if you want to do lots of calculations or you want to do like lots of analysis of some problem in the future on a computer, the optimal way to do that involves involves suffering in some way. And I guess like Black Mirror has has examples, at least like intermediate technological examples where where that's, that's the case in, in some of their episodes. Another one is that they might think that the world is in the future. Conflict is going to be very important. Conflict between different groups. And they'll use violence and threats and torture and moral threats in order to, to get their way. So yeah, those, those are those are interesting lines of argument that we probably probably don't have time to, to cover here. But I, I think they're probably not enough to outweigh the the reasons to expect things to be to be good.
2: Yeah, I definitely agree with you. I guess switching gears a bit. We were curious if, uh, about still with Rob, if there's any unifying theme or ideology behind your work um besides just ea like is there something in your background or educational background that's kind of tied everything together
3: yeah i mean i think of myself primarily as someone who thinks like an economist and reasons through problems like an economist like thinking about trade-offs and how do you maximize benefits given like the resources that you have and i think to some extent the reason that economics is more boring than effective altruism is that economists don't tend to take philosophy like super seriously Very often they just like apply it to practical problems where you can get jobs. Like most people who study economics like ultimately want to work at a bank or a consulting firm or something like that rather than think about the most fundamental problems that that humanity faces. But I think if you're willing to approach economics and you're willing to have not just ordinal utility, so say like this person is better off in this case versus this other, this other case. And we can tell that because they chose to do A rather than B. If you're willing to have cardinal utility, which is like saying, you know, Rob is like happier than than Kieran, so that's so that's more beneficial. Like compare across people, or um, say that not not only are we willing to say like Rob's having a better time than Kieran, but willing to say he's like having a twenty seven percent better time. So, so kind of have, have precise numbers that you. I, I doubt it, Rob. And I think you. I doubt it. Okay, <laughs> I <laughs> doubt it as well. But <laughs> Kieran's a very chill chill guy. So meditates all the time. Um. <laughs> If you're willing to do that, then I think it does kind of have quite radical implications because you're just going to then start thinking, well, how can we maximize the amount of like well-being in the world with a given amount of resources and if you're willing to be open-minded about how to do that, then you quickly go down some like, really interesting lines of thinking where it's like, well, should humans be at all like as they are today? Like, maybe we should just completely re-engineer the, the human experience from scratch and you know, run people on computers or use genetic engineering or, or whatever else in order to like, radically improve the, the human experience. And that's, while I think of that as like, an absolutely core and very natural extension of economics, I think most economists would not agree.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, as like a very unqualified current economics undergrad, I, I don't even know if you would need to... um like revolutionize like ordinal versus cardinal thinking in order to like get there. I mean, it seems like you could just have people like choose between um, like use, like have like the revealed preference, like be between like, you know, experience for like the ex- experience one for like 10 minutes or experience two for like 15 minutes and stuff like that. I'm, well, maybe I'm mixing up like cardinal and ordinal versus, versus other considerations, but but it seems like you could still use like some of like the revealed choice, like framework in order to like better quantify, like how much people value different experiences and like how much better they are. Than one another. Hmm. And first, yeah, let, let me let you comment on
3: that. Yeah. Well, th- there was broadly speaking this turn away from cardinal utility towards just ranking different experiences like within a person and not being willing to do comparisons of well-being across different across different people in the in the 30s. And I think it did make economics a lot more boring because you were no longer able to say, well, if we take money from this person and give it to this other person, they're going to get 10 times as much utility out of it. That kind of thing was strongly strongly discouraged. So you didn't have like social welfare functions that would allow you to have more interesting policy implications other than just like, let's maximize people's incomes or their, or their choice set or whatever. And I guess... If you're only doing ordinal utility, then I guess what can you say about the case where it's like, well, let's create someone new who's going to like be having a much better time. If you're not willing to do interpersonal comparisons of utility, then you can't even like really tell whether that's positive because you can only rank the different lives that that person could live based on their, based on their choices, which yeah, just naturally, I think, limits the kinds of questions that you're going to be considering.
0: Yeah, maybe you could do some sort of like Rawlsian veil of ignorance. Like, would you rather, like, if you didn't know who you were going to be, like, would you rather be this person or or that person? But there's some definite conceptual issues there. Yeah. Regarding, so you mentioned how like like, economists don't take philosophy maybe as seriously as they ought to. Do you think it works in the other other direction as well? Do you think uh, philosophers ought to take economics more seriously?
3: Well, I think it's true that philosophers in general are not very good at empirical work or very good, I think, at, yeah, knowing what is the evidence within within social science. And I think probably they they would agree with that by and large, because it's not not their specific training. Like philosophers are very specialized in a particular kind of analysis, involving like abstract reasoning and like improving things from different premises and seeing where you can where you can get from that. It's at least like the kind of philosophy that I follow, it's like surprisingly mathematical. I mean the question like I think if you want to apply philosophy to the real world, which effective altruism is trying to do, then you absolutely need to start engaging with this practical social science like economics. And if you want to study like one more thing in addition to philosophy, I think like economics would, would be a good choice. But maybe you know sociology or psychology or politics could also be could also be uh, really, really relevant. But yeah, I, I think my impression listening to philosophers sometimes when they weigh in on like practical policy questions is that they are overconfident about their ability to read empirical research. And their ability to like tell what are the likely consequences of policies. So yeah, philosophers who, who want to wade into that, uh, I think probably do need to broaden their like analytical toolkit beyond what, what they typically get in a PhD program.
0: Yeah. Okay. Now now moving on, Sieran. So you've had quite the interesting career. So you started out as a professional poker player. Mm-hmm. And then I believe you started studying psychology at the graduate level um, and now are a podcast producer. So that's a super interesting mm-hmm. career. Do you think there's any sort of unifying strand behind behind those experiences?
1: Yeah. So it's a pretty chaotic career. But yeah, my my made up answer is uh, inspired by my friend AJ Jacobs, who is writing a new book all about puzzles. And I think the common strand in my career is that I've always been solving puzzles. So in terms of being a poker player, you know, some people could be attracted primarily by the money or maybe by the lifestyle. You know, they want to live in Vegas or something. But um, for me, I just love the puzzles. I just love, you know, playing an individual poker hand is an individual puzzle. If you're like, okay, here's a story that someone's telling me. Do I believe them? Why wouldn't it be true? And and that's how I how I treated this. That's why it was it was fun. And then as for psychology, you know, which, which happened after I, I decided that I, you know that I wanted to do good with my my career. And although before I had found EA, I was motivated to try and like come up with this whole like different like type of therapy. So it was this like huge puzzle that I took on like trying to like solve that. And then with eighty thousand hours, generally, I think it's very helpful to think about solving global problems as puzzles. This reframing that AJ talks about. So it's like. He'll say things like, rather than like pitch someone on you know, the climate crisis, which can make you co up in the fetal position and just not want to have to deal with it. It's just terrifying. If you reframe that as, well, we're trying to solve the climate puzzle, suddenly it's kind of motivating. You know, people love people are crazy about puzzles. Like, you know, you'll you actually actively want to wake up to like work on that kind of thing. And you know, you'll still get the benefits. You know, people want to solve puzzles even if they have like no realm You know, if it's like, you know, the New York Times puzzle for that day, people are obsessed with it. So like if you can get people to channel that energy into these puzzles, I think it's uh, yeah, enormously valuable. And that's, that's the kind of thing I like with my job is that I get to like constantly be playing around with these different kinds of puzzles, whether it's actually solving problems or just within the editing process, where it's like, OK, I have this 10 hours of raw audio. What the hell am I going to do with this? Uh, I've got to like somehow make it into a popular episode. OK, maybe it's going to be this section is going to go here. Maybe I'm going to cut like this hour here and then we're going to re-record that. and I'm going to move these things around. It's kind of like a jigsaw. And at the end, you, know, you, you feel like you've solved it if you've made a good episode.
2: Uh well I was just curious, we out of pure curiosity, I'm also in the psych realm. And so I was just curious about your new puzzle form of therapy. Can you just explain that a tiny bit if you're still into oh, that? Uh
1: yeah. I mean that that is uh that is a probably a bigger conversation, but basically the background is that like based on my views, I virtually never feel sustained guilt personally. And I was like, well, if I could, you know, bring ideas from philosophy into a therapy situation, sort of basically like teach people the things that that I learned, maybe I could at least reduce guilt in populations where it was particularly pernicious. So like people who have major depression or people with eating disorders, where it's like, you know, this idea of guilt or, you know, self-hatred is particularly bad. I felt like that would be a, a, you know, a, a very new way of addressing these sort of things that I hadn't seen done elsewhere.
2: That's really cool. Do you think you'll ever go back to working on that?
1: Well, what happened was, is that I was in this, uh, yeah, in this graduate program and I was pitching these ideas and my thesis supervisor, who was great, but was saying like, that's really interesting, but no one here is going to be your supervisor for that. And it was basically saying, like, you have to do something like that's actually sort of playing the game, actually, like, just doing what kind of everyone does. And then maybe, you know, after you've, like, been working in this field for, like, five, ten years, maybe they can come back to this sort of crazy stuff. And that's when, that was right around the time that I found effective altruism. And so once once I, like, had that in and I started talking to people who are like, fairly high up in the EA world, yeah, it was kind of an easy decision for me to drop out.
0: Well, if, if any clinical psychology, you know, supervisors, professors are listening to this, uh, here's <laughs> a call to action, so... <laughs> Yeah. So like when we first decided to start this podcast, uh, so there's three co-founders here at Georgetown um, and two of us are like really big podcasting fans. So we decided to start this podcast and we were immediately thinking like what, you know, what guests to have on. And, and I, you know, I was driving home one night and yeah, you guys came to mind as why not like learn from the best if we're going to start a podcast, like let's uh, let's learn from other podcasters. So what um, advice do you have for, for us and other interviewers or podcasters or what things have you learned over the years that you might be able to pass on?
3: Yeah. So I think something that maybe surprised me is the extent to which it's just terrible to be looking at text whenever you're whenever you're speaking. So often guests, they want to come in, they've, they've taken a whole bunch of notes, they've thought ahead of time about what answers they're going to give to different questions, and then they want to have their laptop open so that they can kind of scan down, scan down the notes as they're doing their answers. And this might sound like a bad idea. And it's an even worse idea than that for the great majority of people, Uh, because as soon as someone starts looking at words with their eyes, I think you can tell that the tone of voice changes significantly and it starts to sound like a boring lecture or something that's quite prepared and like I tune out (laughs) as a as a listener overwhelmingly once we've managed to convince people to have a go at answering the questions without having like any text in front of their eyes the answers are fluent they're they're a whole lot more engaging and i guess it's because people are like actually producing the ideas they're bringing the ideas to mind and then turning them into words and moving them out rather than trying to like effectively they're reading (laughs) reading something out from a page which has a completely different it's like it's in a sense more structured (laughs) but it seems like humans as listeners For whatever reason, we kind of enjoy this like halting speech style, which when transcribed looks like garbage, but but as a listener actually works really well to keep you engaged because I mean, I'm kind of speculating, but I think it's because listening to someone like pause and say, um, and, you know, go, go fast and slow and be excited at particular points that causes you to try to get in their head and to be like basically mirroring the thoughts that they're having as they're, as they're generating the speech in a way that isn't possible. Someone, someone
0: reading a text. Yeah, you guys have probably listeners, you've probably heard exactly what Rob's talking about. So like I have a split screen here with my notes on one side and the Zoom screen on the other. And you guys have almost certainly heard me like start reading out in a slightly different tone of voice. So so moving forward, I'll try to I'll try to avoid that. <laughs> Thank you for the tip.
1: Yeah, I would say the biggest piece of advice for new podcasts is, is that guest selection is by far the most important thing. So I think that sounds like obvious, but also I think people just maybe don't internalize that as much as they should, in that there are a lot of things you can get away with. You know, you can have an episode that goes way too long, that has like sessions that don't work. You know, you, you can have, you know, technical problems, which that, that can be bad too. That's the same thing. But basically, if you get the guest selection wrong, it's just unrecoverable, basically. The episode can just be like, well, that's it. Like now, now you're in like damage limitation, or it's like, you know, maybe you can like keep cutting down. And, you know, I think maybe... Maybe, you know, people have had this experience if they try to make podcasts, like you can have these episodes that just kind of go off the rails. And now you're like, well, you know, I've got at least like three hours, like, should I make it into like half an hour or is there where to salvage it? And I think basically just like spending a lot of time carefully thinking about guests and getting outside opinions and maybe even doing test calls is really worth it. So like, if let's say you got like, you know, you're going to like interview someone for two hours, it might even be worth breaking that down into saying like, I actually think it'd be better to do like a 20 minute test call and have like, you know, an hour, 40 minutes for the actual podcast. You know, if you like, you know, only want to take two hours of this person's time and then actually like be quite, quite ruthless with, with saying like, well, this person just maybe they're like, you know, either, you know, very bright, but like just aren't a good communicator. Or maybe they're like a great communicator, but when you talk to them, it sounds like they don't actually have that much to say. And uh, yeah, so it's just basically, if you get a great guest, then you can incorporate some of our other tips about like making sure they're as comfortable as possible and giving them like free rant kind of thing out you want. And you can kind of, you know, hold their hand along to getting a great episode out of it.
3: Yeah. Some people have the gift of the gab and some people don't. And And I don't know, like, is this some like deep personality thing that people also had when they were five? Or is it just that some people train much more in communication than others? But yeah, there's a very stark range. And if someone neither particularly has this talent to start with, and nor have they cultivated the the talent of like putting themselves in the mind of the audience and thinking, what does this other person need to know in order to get to where I am? If they haven't trained that, we're not able to like trade them in that quickly enough to, to make an episode work.
1: I mean, another one is just that um, it turns out the audio quality is just very important for listener retention, which is another one that maybe sounds obvious, but it is, it's weirdly hard to get right. And it's worth uh, spending a lot of time on it. And actually, Probably just biting the bullet and investing a bit of money in it if you're starting a podcast early, but just saying like, I'm just going to get a great microphone. I'm just going to get my setup. I'm going to reach out to people who are podcasters maybe and get like the right advice because we still struggle with this. I mean, even though we take this very seriously and we have this impressive organization behind us, we've still gotten this wrong a bunch of times. And there are just like so many things that can go wrong. So basically, yeah, just like investing in the best equipment and the best software and the best, you know, video calling software just seems like a great decision.
0: All right. Well, hopefully, we'll take a step up from my my Zoom system right here, where I'm just recording on my computer <laughs> audio. Actually, I did buy a $15 standalone microphone. Then I tried it out, and it was, if anything, worse than my computer. So that's um, <laughs> just sitting in my in my closet. Yeah, like yeah, I'm not using that right now.
3: <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting to. Think about like why is it that audio quality is so key to like to whether people continue to listen to an interview or not? Like even holding everything else constant, uh, I don't. I'm not sure that I that I know, but I guess one thing that I suspect is just that it's difficult to concentrate on low quality audio uh, because you both have to be doing two things at once, like trying to figure out what the person said through the like static or whatever else, and then also like analyzing it. And it's just like so much less fun to be doing those two things uh, at once, like people, people get tired. And I, I don't know, I, I feel like this when I'm listening to low quality audio, I just get exhausted. Uh, <laughs> I guess it's like possibly the brain is just overworking because it's not that easy to actually extract the signal from, from low quality audio.
0: Yeah. Maybe, maybe it's something like, it's like easy to, if it's like really good quality audio, it seems to me like, it just sounds like real life. So like, you're, you're not even, you're sort of able to forget about the medium and like, similar to just like, you know, really high quality screen, like HD television or something. I think that the whole point is to like sort of forget the mediums there to like embed yourself in it. And 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 I think like simulating real life is like kind of why podcasting is so attractive. It sounds like a, it sounds like some friends having a conversation.
1: Yeah, definitely. And, and I mean, Rob mentioned this earlier, but yeah, podcasting is this really intimate medium where it's like, if you listen to someone for, you know, people fans of the show have listened to Rob for hundreds of hours now, you know, you really get to feel like you know him. And I do feel like it does. Yeah, it takes away from that a little bit if suddenly it sounds like Rob's underwater or something. It's like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> like, we, we probably wouldn't be having a beer underwater. So
3: now I'm suddenly not <laughs> suddenly not in that world anymore.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh.
3: This This reminds me of this question of like, why is it that people find it so much easier to listen to a conversation where there's back and forth than a lecture? And this this is true even if basically effectively the person is giving a lecture where every minute or two I say, "Uh-huh, uh, tell me more about that." <laughs> I find I as a listener find that way easier to follow. My guess again, it's pure speculation, is just that there's some like deep evolutionary psychology reason why our brains find the interaction between people like listening to conversations to be incredibly fascinating because we want to track like social relations or we like evolve to track social relationships within our group much more than we evolved to like track cost benefit analysis of some like disease surveillance system. So it's like having the social element of like two people connecting and like understanding their relationship and like seeing what they're feeling. That's kind of the yummy part for most people's brains. That's like, that's the sugar that, that helps the, the information go down. Yeah, but other
0: people might other people might have different theories. Yeah, I'm just like thinking out loud. If somebody like who's like some sort of communication and AI expert wants to work on on taking like text and then turning it into like a social interaction instead of just reading the text out loud, that could be a, that could be a very cool program.
3: Yeah, well I don't know. Make me think. What if you did just turn lecture so, you know, you got the, like the microeconomics 101 class in undergrad. Could you have the lecturer giving the lecture, but then there's a person who's kind of responding the whole time being like, "Oh, I I like didn't follow that," or like, "Can you make that any clearer?" I guess it's a lot of work for that for that person, but it wouldn't surprise me if it was way more engaging for people in the lecture theater to be watching this interaction between two folks, like two people having a
0: conversation about
3: microeconomics. <laughs> that would be to follow yeah. one person monologuing for 50 minutes.
0: Yeah, and it, even just to like play along with the um, like speculative evolutionary psychology. I think even just like the difference between reading and talking, like just, we started reading so much more recently. Like we like were talking for like, I don't want to like guess on the timeline, but like a really long time. And like, yeah, we haven't been, we've been reading for, you know, kind of a long time, but you know, only really since like the 1400s or something like uh, before that, it was only like rich people who had like a few books lying around. So I do think, I mean, yeah. if I had to guess, I would think just like listening to things, is just like a little bit more psychologically natural. Uh, maybe this is just like my bias because i personally find it easier to, easier to consume information that way but yeah maybe there's a maybe there's some like low-hanging fruit in terms of like the ability to uh, to transmit information well mm, i don't know
3: yeah, I mean, so some people hate audio, like, yeah. uh, I don't know, <laughs> it seems like there are audio people, and there's people who hate audio. And it feels like almost intellectually, we're bifurcating into consuming <laughs> completely different, completely different content. I wonder whether that will have any interesting consequences in future. But yeah, I, I think you're exactly right that like, reading is this like Johnny come lately, like ridiculous way of transmitting information. Having a conversation is the like hunter gatherer thing that's been around for hundreds of thousands, conceivably millions of years. So it's perhaps not, yeah, not surprising that it's just so much less demanding to absorb information that way. Because for almost all of our, Revolutionary history. That's how people were learning almost everything.
0: Yeah. The people who are really doing God's work are the ones reading blog posts onto podcasts. Um so that there's somebody who does uh the slate star codex posts, which is like, thank God. Um yeah, like thank you for doing that. (laughs) And like uh yeah, some um cold takes. Yeah, the author of that reads it out loud. Yeah, so so strongly encourage that. If you're (laughs) that's like my favorite thing.
1: (laughs) That's uh that's Holden Karnovsky's blog, just for just for listeners.
0: Uh, so maybe I'll cut this out, but um a few weeks ago I tweeted out like i was like really impressed with the whole like uh most important century thing so i tweeted out like oh this is like really like this is like the most persuasive like piece of like persuasive writing i've encountered or something but i tagged like i like tagged the wrong person so now i'm like really self-conscious whenever i mention it whoever's like uh, like the other person like the, one of the other like head honchos at like um open film like, alex
1: alex, alexander. alex Berger alexander yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i tagged alex Berger.
0: And, he re- and he replied on twitter he was like oh that's very flattering but like wrong person. <laughs> And I was like, oh, my God, no, like I had one job and I couldn't even.
3: (laughs) You'll never work in this town again, mate.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. So do you have any other final tips for like new podcasters or interviewers?
1: So one thing is that it could be easy and actually good to like really immerse yourself in a guest's work. And, you know, read all of their papers and like, just, you know, get obsessed with it. But the thing to keep in mind is that your listeners have not done all of that research. And so what you really need to do is be bringing them along with your questions. So like to try and like, keep in mind the questions you had when you started looking to their work. Uh, and maybe even it's worth just writing up a doc of your initial questions to remember that. Because once you get into their work and you're like, oh, I've read like five papers they've done, your questions are going to be so different. And your audience members are just not going to be able to follow it. Uh, that's one way an episode can, can fail. Okay, cool. Cool. Thank you.
3: Yeah, I guess perhaps a mistake that I see like very often with people when they're doing their first few interviews is that they write down questions that they would really like to have answers to, which the guest is very unlikely to actually be able to answer. Like, So there'll be like extremely ambitious questions like, you know, what is the solution to economics? So I guess I suppose classic one would be asking, people have sometimes wanted me to ask, say, people working on animal rights, they'll say like, Can you get them to tell us what should be the weighting of different species and exactly how we should do interspecies comparisons? And that's exactly the kind of question that I would have asked in the first few interviews that I was doing. And then I quickly realized that the fact that I really want to know something doesn't mean that the guest, even if they're like in some adjacent area, necessarily has an answer to these timeless philosophical problems. Yeah. So at this point, we think like we spend more time a bit thinking about like what stuff does this person know, and maybe a little bit less time thinking about like what, in an ideal world, would I like to ask an oracle that knew everything?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll, so I'll try not to ask you guys what the meaning of life is. Or, you know, or is or like
3: that. <laughs> Just ask us. So like, what's the nature of consciousness?
0: <laughs> yeah. No. Um, um. Actually. Oh, I. I really. Think I, I think you guys cut that from the list of things I wanted to talk about because I did. I did. I think I initially had that. I wanted to know fine, yeah. fine. You know what, now, now that we're discussing it, maybe we'll cut this out. But um, would either of you guys like to comment on uh, your, your current take on the nature of consciousness? <laughs>
3: like, to be consistent with what I was saying, I uh, I feel like extremely unqualified to, to weigh in. I guess if you're asking like how I feel about it, um, I guess I, I know some people who feel like, oh, there is no hard question of consciousness, that there's no great mystery that we uh, feel the way that we do or that we feel that we feel the way that we do. They're like, content with it being some illusion to do with information processing. And I guess I just personally don't find that like super persuasive. I I do feel like in my heart that there is some mystery about like, why does it feel like anything to be me? Um, Yeah. I I haven't had time actually to delve into like great details on the supposed, on, on the like, purported debunking explanations on that Uh, but at least the the stuff that I've read so far uh, hasn't made me feel any less uh, like the the problem is any less mysterious and peculiar than I kind of originally did yeah and I mean for me I mean I I am fascinated with the topic um, as it sounds like you are
1: the one thing that I could say like confidently about it is that I take the same Harris position that really the one thing about the universe that we know is not an illusion is consciousness and that it is like something to be me and we don't know what that is. It's just like baffling. It's mysterious. It's, it's fascinating. I would love to have the answer to it. But yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, that is that is the one position that I think uh, is kind of incoherent to me. is people saying like, yeah, there's just, there's just no mystery here.
0: Okay. So, no, you know, I, uh, it's,
1: it's, it's an illusion? Yeah, an it's illusion. illusion
3: of what? Yeah. <laughs> of itself. The thing that it is. How could there be an illusion if you're not experiencing yeah, so it's like, it? So it, it, it,
1: could, it could be the case that we're in a simulation and it is still the case yeah. that there is some being here that is conscious. It is still like something to be me. As long as you're having that subjective experience. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I um, I I I like you. I bo- I like like both of you. I definitely think there's a mystery there, and I like. I'm not. I don't think that like. I don't think consciousness is like an illusion, whatever that means. Like, I actually do think that it's like a coherent position, though. To say that it's just like fake and like actually we're all p zombies and like there's no like like subjective experience just like does not exist because like I don't know. I can get into this, but like Keith Frankish has has a position like called illusionism where he like really owns a position that like, no, we are not conscious. Like, it really is like, not just like an illusion in that, like, in that, like it, it sort of exists in one sense, but not in another, but like, it really just doesn't exist. And like, I, unfortunately like have to give, like, I give him like credit for like making the case that actually like that is kind of possible, even though I don't really believe it. But um, yeah, I, I don't think we're going to, we're going to resolve this issue um, on air. <laughs> Okay, so as a as a final question, I reached out over social media to see what questions people had for you guys. And one person wanted to know a Rob's thought process regarding what he tweets and why so like, it, it seems like you might take a lot on a little bit more of a contrarian tone on Twitter than you do on the podcast. Do you have like a, a theory of Twitter and how you use it? Or is it more just like off the cuff? Do you have any thoughts on that?
3: Yeah, I mean, so one thing is Twitter is a personal outlet rather than a rather than a professional one. So I'm like, yeah, uncensored and un- unfiltered by professionalism on there. I definitely like I don't shy away from being sassy on Twitter and potentially just making very clear that I think a position is is very misguided. I guess the criticism that people might have is that sometimes I'm weak manning a position that I'm criticizing, and I think there's something to that. On the other hand, I I think very often, like I'm weak manning a position in a sense, but I'm also making like extremely salient, like what is an internal tension or what is a, a weakness in a position. Possibly it can be responded to or there's other arguments in its favor. But Twitter is a medium where you have 240 characters or so. And so it is more useful for that like single point where you're like, whatever else you could say for something like here's like a sassy remark that highlights highlights a problem with this particular view. I think it's like admirable that many people don't like that because they're like, no, I want like a more balanced view. I don't want you to like be making fun of this weakness in a position that you that you disagree with. It's a cheap shot or something like that. I think those people are often like they have a lot of integrity and, and that's great. I maybe just, I care about being funny too much or I like care about (laughs) having kind of interesting and entertaining things to say. And I think maybe the mentality that you want to bring to Twitter just because of the nature of the format is that people are not giving like fair all around views on things by and large. You're like learning little pieces of information that you could potentially put together into a picture, but no, no individual tweet is going to do any issue total justice. I also just have this general philosophy with social media or with things that people are opting into consuming in general. People shouldn't try to produce something that pleases everyone or even that like pleases a group that like isn't really the group that they feel the greatest affinity with. Because there's like hundreds of thousands, millions of Twitter feeds out there that people could choose to consume. And for the great majority of people, they're going to have no interest whatsoever in following my Twitter and reading my tweets. I'm just writing it for the like tiny minority of people who have some interest in like my combination of sincerity and interest in doing good and like interest in also being funny and like being sassy and sometimes being a bit unprofessional. If if you're not into that, then there's other people who are kind of adjacent who are a bit more serious and and a bit more like like a bit more intellectual integrity with like every issue that they talk about. And it's fantastic for people to go people to go and follow that. But I think if I tried to adjust too much in response to feedback of people who don't like that, then Pretty quickly, other people would complain that I'm not as interesting and entertaining as I used to be. So it's just not possible to please everyone. But I would also, I think it would become boring because it would no longer be authentic and I wouldn't be enjoying myself and I wouldn't be like expressing the person that I am, which is somewhat flawed. Like sometimes I want to take that cheap shot. Sometimes I want to make a, a joke at the expense of a position that I don't like. So yeah, people should gravitate towards the stuff that they like and just unsubscribe from stuff that they don't.
0: Awesome. Um, but yeah, thanks for sharing. Yeah. I was just talking to somebody who like works at a think tank. Cause I want to, yeah, as I mentioned, I'm applying to the open field thing. One I want to try like working at a think tank and he was basically like, yeah, you need a master's degree. Like it's also really helpful. Like helpful if you have like a couple thousand followers on Twitter, like, <laughs> like, 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 that's like the, like number two in line, like should be like your second priority basically. Um, it's like you want to break into like the public policy world. So I should probably, I should probably get on that. <laughs> Anyway, yeah. So are there any other points you guys want to hit whatsoever? Yeah, I'm totally open to anything. Maybe.
3: Yeah. The issues that we talk about the show are like very serious and very dark. And there's a lot of value in like being very serious and scholarly and academic about it. But people also got to have fun. (laughs) And that's like part of what Twitter is, is just sometimes you just want to like share that stupid meme. (laughs) And I think people should absolutely, absolutely embrace that part of themselves and not feel like, because effective altruism is, is a moral movement that we have to be dour and serious all the all the time. But I would think that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and I suppose, yeah, it, it might be um, coming into this conversation, maybe people would have a view of Rob that he's like somewhat intimidating. And I would just like to hope that this conversation has tried to like expose his many flaws and make <laughs> you feel like that he would be actually very approachable. And that, uh, yeah, you too could, could potentially host a successful effective altruism podcast, even if you are as flawed.
0: Okay. Well, I think, I think I'm definitely at least this flawed. So, so that's very encouraging. Thank you. <laughs> anyway, this has been a blast. Uh, Kieran and Rob, thank you so much for coming on.
3: Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. It's been, been a pleasure. Best of luck with the show. Thanks so much for having us.
1: If you want to hear more from Carney and Aaron, you can subscribe to their new podcast called All Good. First thing on their feed is Aaron's recent interview as a guest on the Narratives podcast. Uh, During the episode, host Will Jarvis talks to Aaron about a key way he thinks people go wrong when choosing a career, how society treats children, how bureaucracy works, whether the FDA should have to approve medications, his interest in psychopharmacology, and a whole lot more. All right. Audio mastering and technical editing for this episode by Ben Cordell. Full transcripts and an extensive collection of links to learn more are available on our site and put together by Katie Moore. And I produce the show. Thanks for
0: joining.